0: Which players are the best bets for Dynasty, and who are the top prospects in general? I'll ask James Anderson about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 11th. It's Show Number 28 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball Season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday Full Edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with James Anderson, the lead prospect analyst and assistant baseball editor at RotoWire, the co-host of Farm Fridays on SiriusXM, and the co-host of the RotoWire Prospect Podcast. He'll be discussing his updated Dynasty Top 400 rankings. One of them is 41 years old, and his revamped top 100 prospects, and more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Joey Botto, Jack Flaherty, the overpopulated San Francisco outfield, and what's the matter with Victor Robles. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Ian Kennedy, Jared Kellenick, John Means, and an in depth look at Baseball HQ's pitcher matchup scores. And we'll have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon looks at Mets, third base prospect Brett Beatty. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky looks at Tampa right-handed starter Drew Strotman. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about a look at pitchers' first career starts. It's another big Friday Full Edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The game is always good for some excitement and some laughs. And we're going to talk some baseball. Baseball has been the source of some great humor over the years. Who's on first, of course? George Carlin even Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, and the hidden subtle humor, well that's and the humor that runs throughout all four. We'll have some baseball comedy clips throughout this edition of Baseball HQ Radio for your enjoyment, because the rest of this edition is no laughing matter. This is serious stuff. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at RotoWire. wire James, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. I believe this is your first time
2: i'm happy to be on with you i really appreciate the invitation
0: i usually start these talks by asking uh, about your fantasy teams but i was looking at your uh, resume at rotowire you're the lead prospect analyst the assistant baseball editor the co-host of farm fridays on sirius xm and the co-host of the rotowire prospect podcast so my first question has to be where the hell do you find the time to play fantasy baseball
2: oh man uh yeah it's a, it's a huge challenge uh got 20 teams this year so i you know my wife my wife doesn't love my hobby that much right now but um yeah it's 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 been a really busy season but it's been a lot of fun too and i mean i i don't uh, i don't mind spending time on on fantasy baseball
0: so 20 teams what kind of formats does that all cross and do you play dfs
2: I do not play DFS. I definitely don't have time for that. Um, <laughs> I I am in probably a third of those are probably Dynasty Leagues. Uh, maybe another three Keeper Leagues. And then the rest are just various redraft formats. I primarily do redraft on the NFBC. So some 12-teamers, some 15-teamers. I actually don't play in any mono leagues. I don't play in any AL-only or NL-only leagues. But uh, Playing some dynasty leagues that are definitely deep enough to kind of qualify.
0: How are your teams doing? I'm actually having, th- this is probably my
2: best year ever through two months. So um, knock on wood that that continues. Uh, obviously I have a few teams that, you know, I, I wish I could get a mulligan on just like anyone else, but uh, definitely pretty competitive um, top, two or three in in the majority of my leagues this year.
0: How long have you been playing fantasy baseball? How'd you get into it?
2: So I am, I'm 33 right now. I played my first fantasy baseball league when I was a sophomore in college. That was like a a 10 team keeper league on ESPN. And then uh, joined a couple other keeper leagues the year after that. and really, really kind of, uh, fell in love with it. Um, didn't t- didn't take too long. So I guess that would have been twenty two thousand seven 2007 when I first started. So coming nice. up here on 14 years, 15 years.
0: And when you started out, did you still have the, uh, 15 team mixed sort of format only, or did you, were you in ALNL only at the time?
2: no i was in I was in ten team mixers, like you know pretty pretty shallow you know yeah. like I, that's how I got my feet wet uh, and then just the the more i played i mean i it, it didn't take me long to really kind of fall in love with the prospect aspect of uh baseball and how that could translate into the fantasy realm and so obviously, if you're dealing with prospects and and you want your prospect knowledge to really count. You want to go really deep. You want to play in leagues where you can keep as many guys as possible. So uh, that's really sort of where I um, started sort of transitioning. But then since I started working at RotoWire, I've gotten into the 12-team, the 15-team mixed league format quite a bit.
0: I was going to ask how you got into the prospects, so it was directly an offshoot of wanting to f- scout the prospects on your own to build your dynasty and keeper teams by having the in- inside track, as it were, on uh, on who those rising stars might be?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I first really got into baseball prospects uh, through just listening to, to people like uh, Jason Parks at uh, Baseball Prospectus uh, back in the day and, like, even Keith Law on ESPN way back in the day and um, just really liked that sort of, um, you know, th- th- this is a part of the game back then, you know, 10, 12 years ago where it, it, it wasn't as big as it is now. Like, I feel like there's there's a ton of people doing prospect content these days, but back then it was more of sort of a niche thing, and uh, it was just really sort of fun, kind of trying to uncover the next the next big thing. And so I, I fell in love with it sort of first, um, independent of fantasy. But it then I started working for Rotowire, um, like a, like kind of right around then, and I was looking to sort of carve out you know a space for myself at at Rotowire because. You know, like Derek Van Riper and Clay Link and Jeff Erickson were doing such a good job with just the big league coverage uh, at the site. And we didn't really have a a full timer who who was focused on the minor league aspect of things. So that's sort of where I uh, just really tried to to work really hard and and try to stick out on that side of stuff. and And it worked
0: out. Well, you mentioned that at the time, back in the day, uh, I, I I've been playing a lot longer than you have, and my first league formats were single league and uh, not that deep, and you, you, and they were keepers. So you did need to try to derive an advantage by knowing who the prospects were. The problem was it was virtually impossible to find out who the prospects were because except for Baseball America, nobody was covering them. And now it seems like we've come all the way to the other end of that spectrum where the information advantage you can glean from prospect coverage is really reduced because now everybody has access to it. So where do you think the next step is insofar as taking your knowledge of prospects, not you personally, but as a player who, who cover, who looks at how the prospects are developing, where's the next opportunity to be a step ahead of the competition, given that the competition has access to much, the same information as most of us do.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think, um, I think a lot of people could really improve as players, and as analysts, if they, and I mean, you, I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but uh, I think with this heightened coverage of prospects, they have in some cases become more overvalued than ever. And I think that, that that's uh, an issue in redraft leagues. It's an issue in dynasty and keeper leagues where just because we know a ton of stuff about these guys that doesn't make them necessarily any any safer than they were back when we didn't know that much about them it just it just means that we know more about them and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where we should be investing uh in fantasy and i i, I don't really think i i don't know of sort of this the next step but i i do think people uh, on the whole at least you know when when i interact with people like i, I do think in many cases prospects are being overvalued so um, it, as much as you possibly can kind of separating out that emotional aspect of, of i've had this prospect and i've been i've been waiting on him and i can't possibly trade him now you know that type of thing that is just kind of human nature um, and, and i think it just comes with reps too i mean i think we've uh, got a lot of good young analysts in the fantasy baseball community, and and some of them probably haven't even been playing uh, as as long as I have, let alone as long as you have. And it's it's something you kind of learn with reps. Like the more you play fantasy baseball, you, you're going to learn from your mistakes, ideally. And so I think just you, it's great to know as much as you possibly can about minor leaguers, but then learning what how that information should translate into the way you play fantasy baseball, I still think there's a lot of room for for progress there.
0: I was thinking when you were saying that uh, in a couple of the drafts I was in this year, I saw Bobby Witt go in virtually all of them as a drafted player, not as a reserve round, but somebody who a a pick was used on or was paid for in an auction. I saw Adley Rutschman go in a couple of drafts. Certainly saw Wander Franco go in a whole bunch of drafts. And uh, there's a couple of other guys uh, I'm thinking of, maybe Mackenzie Gore here and there. And really, none of these guys has had any impact on uh, fantasy standings whatsoever. And I think that uh, what you're saying is really something that people ought to take to heart because... It's very exciting for prospect analysts to mention all these names of guys that they've seen especially, or but whom they've been covering, and to say, this guy's right around the corner. This guy's right around the corner. He's the next Alex Rodriguez, or or the next uh, Jacob deGrom, or something like that. And we all get excited, and then we all kind of throw a little bit of money on the table that maybe would be better saved for somebody who's actually in the big leagues and producing at a certain level. Because it's, it seems like it's, despite all the information we have, it's a fairly high risk proposition.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think um, it's it's a mistake I've I've been guilty of plenty of times in the past. You know, I, I was, I've been uh, wrong to uh, really get overexcited about certain prospects throughout the years, and I mean, you're gonna have some hits in there for sure, but you're gonna have more misses than hits, and. You know, a lot of a lot of my teams that are doing really well this year, I don't have a single prospect on my roster, or at least I didn't leave the draft with a single prospect on my roster. And you're, you're not going to lose, you're, you're not going to not win your league because you didn't draft the best prospect that year. Um, you can lose your league by leaving the draft with four minor leaguers. I mean, that's, that's a great way to lose
0: your league. So I was going to ask if you did take any prospects. Of course, in redraft leagues, it's particularly important to be real uh, circumspect about uh, investing in or taking flyers on these prospects, even if you think they're fairly likely to arrive in the big leagues. But there's the service time manipulations that go on. There's the team context when you're looking at a player. Is he going to get called up? Maybe not because the team wants to hold off as long as they can. They've got an adequate guy in in place. And so there are all these considerations to take into account that I don't think people do take enough account of. But it's of course, it's a different kettle of fish entirely in in, uh, dynasty and keeper leagues because there those kind of players really do have significant value to the point where sometimes you might want to, if your league rules allow it, invest actual draft capital to acquire a guy just to have him for the next year or the years down the road.
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, the, the the prospects that I did end up with in redraft were guys like uh, Dylan Carlson or Cabrian Hayes or uh, Andrew Vaughn, who like we we sort of had an idea. Those guys were probably going to open the year in the majors. Um, it's, you know, in this environment with all the injuries. um with COVID still playing a part early in the season, it, it's it's a, not something that's really appetizing to me to, to be stashing a prospect in, especially in a 12- or 15-team mixed league. Um, Dynasty is obviously a, a whole a whole other thing, like you said.
0: At the end of May, James, you released your updates to your top 400 Dynasty rankings and to the top 100 of your top 400 prospects for Dynasty list. How often do you update these lists?
2: Uh the dynasty ones, I shoot for uh, three to four times a year. Those are incredibly challenging and um, often really unsatisfying. Uh, it's a process where I never really feel like I've just nailed it, you know, like I, I, it's really tough to put a set of dynasty rankings together and feel like, man, I, these are awesome. <laughs> I really crushed it on these because, and it, it's 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 a lot harder in season. I mean, in the off season, at least everything is just very uh, stagnant, so you can um, spend a lot of time analyzing players without anything changing about the players you're analyzing. In season, I mean, we our subscribers want as many updates as possible, and and so I I try to do one after the first couple months, and then I try to do one. Right before the trade deadline, because I know in a lot of dynasty leagues the MLB trade deadline is their trade deadline as well. So people like having a, a fresh set of rankings right before they have to make decisions about trading guys. But um, you know that these are these are really painstaking to put together. So uh, three to four times a year on the dynasty rankings, and then uh, the prospect rankings; those get updated more regularly. Um, the first update, as you said, was. About a month into the minor league season, I'll have another update. Um, probably just right after the MLB draft, incorporating uh, all the players who just got drafted into the prospect rankings. Uh, that's always one of my favorite updates of the year. And then I'll do another one um, probably around the start of August. Another one um, probably sometime in September, and right right at the beginning of the off season, another one kind of in January. So the, the prospect rankings are, are going to get six plus updates per year.
0: Is your prospects list updated to remove guys who actually get into the major leagues? Do they take themselves off the list or do you still consider them prospects until there's like really solidly established?
2: Uh, I, I use MLB's criteria. So uh, 130 at bats, 50 innings, 45 days on the active roster. Um, as soon as a guy's eclipsed those thresholds, I'm going to take them off the list. It might not happen that very day or even that very week if I'm really busy, but uh, I, I follow the, the letter of the law in terms of who's prospect eligible and who's not.
0: It would seem sort of intuitive that the two lists would be highly parallel or highly congruent, I guess is a better way to put it. But they're not really, and there's a there's some fairly significant differences. How is it that a player can be very highly rated as a prospect in general, but not very not as highly rated or higher rated in a dynasty rankings list for fantasy purposes?
2: So I the dynasty rankings I I make those with OBP leagues in mind, uh, not batting average leagues, uh, and then I I do those for in theory, a 15-team league where each team starts two catchers. And then for the prospect rankings, I do those um, for batting average, but they do come with a set of OBP arrows. The dynasty rankings come with a set of average arrows that show which guys are maybe higher or lower, um, depending on your format. And then the prospect rankings, I do those for like a, a 20-team league where everyone starts one catcher. I don't know if that that's helpful or... Not helpful. I just know that people play like those. To me, are kind of the most common types of leagues. I'm in a lot of batting average leagues, and then a lot of OBP leagues. I'm in some leagues where catchers are fairly valuable because every team needs to start two of them. I'm in some leagues where catchers are not that valuable at all because uh, there's only 20 guys started at a time, and um, so I just I tried to sort of capture those two kind of predominant formats with the two sets of rankings i mean i'm sure some people wish that i just did both of them for obp or both of them for batting average um so you will see guys like uh adley rutschman is a great example like if you're doing obp and you're doing a, a league where every where 30 catchers are started uh adley rutschman gets a bump up because he's just he's an obp monster he hasn't proven that in the big leagues yet, but he's um, probably the best catching prospect I've ever ranked. And he's, you know, obviously in, in those leagues where you're starting two catchers, having a guy who, if he lives up to his very, very high uh, grades on, on the power and the, the hit tool and the plate skills, he could end up being, you know, a guy that has a JT Real Muto type of run and having that guy in a league where, uh, every team has to start two catchers is incredibly valuable.
0: Kind of jumping the gun here a little bit, James. But how likely is Adley Rushman to get to the big leagues this year?
2: I would say less than twenty percent chance. Um, the Orioles, specifically, I think, underassigned pretty much every pro- every major prospect in their organization. Uh, I think you could make a case that every one of their top guys should have been assigned to a level higher than they were. Uh, I think they obviously did that intentionally. They have zero interest in putting the best team they can on the field in 2021. They are going to try to open their window, not necessarily to compete, but they're going to start letting their best prospects play in the big leagues in 2022. So Adley Rutschman is going to be the face of this whole rebuild. Uh, if if everything goes according to plan, he's going to be the best player, one of the two or three best players on the next good Orioles team. And so they're being very um, deliberate in terms of when they start his clock.
0: You said you like hitters with five-category potential, but at the same time, speed-first guys, five-category guys, but speed-first guys like Adalberto Mondesi are not anchors for Dynasty Leagues, in your opinion. Why is that?
2: Just in, I think this is, at least in my experience, this is true, at least in recent years. Uh, the, the types of guys who, like a, a Jonathan VR, Adalberto Mondesi, a Victor Robles, when he was playing at his best, um, those guys, they'll help you a ton in that one category, but they are probably going to be negatives or slight negatives in the other four. And I I like I love stolen bases, especially if you're doing something like the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational or the NFBC main event where there's an overall prize and you gotta you gotta compete in all ten categories. But in a standalone dynasty league, you can win your league. You could run away with your league without finishing top third in stolen bases. You might not even finish top half in stolen bases, because if all of your best hitters are guys who hit for average or, or get on base at a high cliff and then they, they hit for power. Well, home runs translate to runs in RBI. Um, stolen bases can translate to runs a little bit, but you know, I, I, just, if, if stolen bases are my worst offensive category in the dynasty league, I'm really not that worried. I, I really want those other four categories to be as strong as possible.
0: And you cautioned also that ratings and rankings like the ones you're putting together are highly contextual. Uh, In addition to whatever we've already said, what did you mean by that?
2: It's it's what makes them so hard to put together because in any given dynasty league, there's probably, you know, maybe 20 to 30% of the teams have a realistic chance of winning the league. Maybe 50% of the teams have, no chance of winning the league that year and so when you're putting a set of dynasty rankings together uh and i I was able to have the time to do this during the the pandemic i put together a set of rankings for contenders and a set of rankings for rebuilders you know if i had that time in season that's probably how i would do it because a set of dynasty rankings it only really matters um in your league context like if i'm if i'm trying to win my league this year there's certain players where it's just like, yeah, they might have some trade value, but they're not helping me actually in the standings. Or there might be a player who is 36, 37, 38. I know that they might only have one year left, or this might be their last year as a, as a helpful player, but they're going to help me win my league this year, and that's what I care about most. So um, it's just it's really tough to, to make a set of rankings where in each league, certain players are just worth way more to certain teams and worth much less to other teams
0: when we read about how teams are rebuilding it it often comes with the idea that the team has targeted a particular year you mentioned baltimore maybe next year they want to be a little more competitive well they can't help but be a little more competitive than they are now i suppose (laughs) but you know what i mean they're going to try to use 2022 as a stepping stone start bringing guys along and then really try to get into the to, to the playoff mix the year after when you're rebuilding uh, a fantasy team a dynasty team or uh, a keeper league team do you think that we should as fantasy managers also be targeting a particular year in the future rather than just a general idea that we're rebuilding for the future because I've played in leagues where guys claim to be rebuilding but they never quite knew when the target was and so they never ever got to a target you know they'd have a half-assed team each of the first of the next five or six years, but never have everything coalesce into that one dynamite offering that might actually be competitive for a pennant.
2: Yeah, it's it's so challenging in dynasty leagues to kind of thread that needle and get your roster ready to win, um, kind of on the the same timeline. Um, you know, it's it's something where you you kind of know it. You, or at least you should sort of know it when you see it. Like you want, um, obviously, all, all of your. You're not going to win a dynasty league without having a, a monster team because that's that's kind of just the nature of things. Like with rebuilders and with contenders, you're inevitably going to have teams in every league that just don't have many uh, win now pieces on them at all. And so those those players tend to be uh, highly populated on the top five or six teams. Um, So if you, if you like, just think, well, I might have a chance. Like I I started the year hot, like I'm in sixth place or something like that. Um, You're just, you can't try to force it. You have to be realistic. Um, And there's in, in Dynasty, in my opinion, there's no shame in not trying to force it. Like I know, I know flags fly forever, but the worst thing you can do is start making win now moves uh when your team's not ready because inevitably you're gonna kind of cap yourself as being maybe the fourth best team in your league or the, the fifth best team in your league. Um, you kind of have to to just see that window open up and then start to make the moves. Like you're like, okay, all my players are they're all really starting to enter their prime right now. Um, everyone's on schedule you know, I caught a few breaks here, I caught a few breaks there. Like now I'm going to actually start moving these remaining, um, trade chips that are on my farm to really solidify any weaknesses I might have. But, um, I know it, it's, it's really hard to be patient. That's a, that's a tough thing to preach because, um, rebuilding sometimes isn't very fun and it's, it's not for everyone. So, um, it's a lot easier said than done.
0: Ask any 76ers fan about the, uh, the, the hinky years and the uh, the process, as he called it at the time, it was a, some hard slogging. But mind you, now they're a contender because it was done properly and patiently. I played in a league once that the, there was one guy in the league who had Mike Trout as a prospect coming up, and that was a $5 salary to start, and then you could hold him for quite a long time at a, at a modestly increasing salary. And he had a bad team. He was the lower half of the league, and he traded Mike Trout to get three or four sort of the Nelson Cruises of the day. In fact, in those days, it could have been Nelson Cruz given how old he is. But uh, it was one of those things where he took 11 dimes for a dollar kind of thing and, and still didn't compete, you know, finished fifth or sixth. And the guy who acquired Mike Trout was building patiently. And, of course, he went on to win, I think, three or four championships out of five years kind of thing. So it's a really... Object lesson to understand that you've got to know what your team is capable of before you commit yourself to to going for something that's uh, probably out of your reach. Uh, this is Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with James Anderson from RotoWire, and James, uh, to make it clear, you're top dynasty guys are not all prospects. Most of them, in fact, are guys who are in the league. They're just fairly young. And you wrote that your top 11 was pretty easy to put together. And it does kind of look that way. Acuna, Tatis, Soto, uh, Vlad, Trout, uh, Turner, Betts, Bellinger, Bichette, uh, Jose Ramirez, and Bryce Harper. And that they stayed pretty much in that order throughout the process of putting the list together. Would the list normally have been more subject to adjustment or is this uh, an unusual sort of year and why wasn't it this year?
2: Um, the, it was just kind of a, a feel thing. Like, I, I just, when I was putting it together, I didn't really start to sort of second guess where guys were uh, slotted until we got past Harper at, at 11. Um, you know, a lot of that just has to do with uh age current performance um past performance um you know i I think the list is much more kind of open to personal preference and interpretation after after those top 11 i'm I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me and say there's someone obviously missing from that 11 that, that you listed off but um i i just think it was The way it broke this year, I just had a a certain level of comfort with those 11. And then there there was a lot of stuff kind of up in the air after that.
0: Even at that, James, it struck me that when you look at this list, you could probably make an argument for any of, if you picked any four guys in a row, you could argue that, you know, the fourth guy should be the second guy and the third guy should be the first guy. And like that. I mean, nobody could probably argue Tatis over Acuna. I wouldn't, but, you know, somebody could make that argument or, or Vladdy over Trout, given the age and stuff like that, could be reversed. All of these kinds of things. So I'm wondering about whether people who consume these lists. Ascribe to them a false sense of the precision of the ranking in the list.
2: Um, I strongly advise people not to, and I think I think people kind of get that, especially especially up top. I mean that. I mean, if you're talking about trading any of those guys, it's just a massive trade for your team that you really need to think long and hard about, and it's got to be something that makes sense for you and is going to make the game more. Uh, or is not going to make the game less enjoyable for you. So I I definitely try to preach. I mean I would probably change a dozen things about just the top 50 of these rankings, and they're about a week old. Uh, like that, that's how quickly this stuff changes, and it's just it's it's very much just a tool. Like I, I said in the the article that I released, these they're kind of like a set of projections. Like if you're using steamer or the bat or something Um, like you're not you shouldn't be just going strictly off of any set of projections they're just they're a useful tool that that can help inform some decisions but they're they're not the be-all end-all
0: you said that you wouldn't have pitchers in the top 20 but i guess somewhere near the last minute you relented and put in garrett cole at number 15 Uh, why did you have the change of heart or change of mind or change of clothes whatever it was (laughs) It's funny
2: cause like right after I did that, he had his worst start of the year. Um, so yeah, I, I was talking to my friend, Ian Kahn, who does the, the dynasty rankings over at the athletic. And, um, we, we like to bounce ideas off each other. And he was like, you're, you're too low on Cole. I was like, no, I, he's a pitcher. Um, you know, as soon, as soon as he gets hurt, then his value just craters. Um, but then I, you know, I was looking at the hitters that I had ahead of him and, you know, a guy like Rafael Devers or, or Alex Bregman um, or even like Ila Jimenez, you know, Devers and Bregman are one year removed from really subpar seasons. Ila Jimenez is hurt. Uh, the guys after that are all prospects who are unproven against big league pitching. So while there is some risk involved with ranking any pitcher highly in dynasty, I just felt like the hitters I had initially ahead of Cole were just as risky and without that level of ceiling, like without the ability of of being a league winner, you know? So um, maybe Cole, we'll we'll see what happens with the the sticky stuff and, and all that, but, I mean, he does just seem like uh, one of those guys where if if he's on your dynasty team and he's healthy, uh, you got a really good shot every year.
0: It seems like given the frequency of the updating of the lists, there's relatively limited opportunity for guys to make huge leaps or huge drops absent injury. Uh, I'll just throw that in, but uh, what is it in general do you think that makes a guy move up on the list or down on the list if we do exclude injury even in as short a time as what you've talked about as your as your updating cycle?
2: Yeah, I mean so like a couple examples of guys who who fell down a noticeable amount were, were like Francisco Lindor uh Glaver Torres, um, you know, like with Lindor, it's kind of a, a le- you know, you're starting to wonder, is is this guy that same guy that he was a couple years ago? We're now um, maybe entering maybe a different stage of his career, different ballpark. Um, and with like Glaver Torres, now we've got a higher percentage of his pro career where he wasn't that, monster he was in 2019 and it's just you're you're not really sure what player you're you're getting uh going forward i mean obviously a good player a player who's going to play every day and isn't going to take much off the table but you know what what, what's his true talent home run output going to be um guys moving up the list you know like jared walsh he was awesome in 2020 now we have even more evidence that that wasn't a flash in the pan that he's he's kind of here to stay at least it, it would seem that way so um just getting that that extra sample size in, in one direction or the other um you know i don't think those guys that, that were fallers are bad players but i think they'd probably go a couple rounds later than they would have been in a, in a startup dynasty draft right now than than before the season
0: Most of the players, especially at the top part of the list, James, are relatively young. But at the far end of the spectrum, you have two players who are over age 40. And I was really surprised to see this, given uh, what we think of when we think of dynasty. But you mentioned context earlier. uh, Minnesota DH Nelson Cruz and Tampa pitcher Rich Hill, who's having a terrific year. I get Cruz. I wouldn't be surprised if he's on your list five years from now, You're going to be the Gordy <laughs> Howe of Major League Baseball or something. But how does an often injured forty-year-old pitcher like Rich Hill fit into anybody's dynasty plans?
2: Well, I think he can help. He can help those top, the top third of the teams in the standings. Like you said, he's often injured. He might be injured a week from now, uh, two weeks from now. But with pitching. It's really, you're not looking that far down the road, at least. I mean, you are, in a sense, you know, with, with say, um, like Shane Bieber, his age is, is relevant, of course. Uh, but with pitchers, I mean, they're, they're all going to break. They're all going to stop being useful at a certain point. And so the guys who are healthy now and helping your fantasy team right now that matters a lot to those top teams. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter like rich hill being on the the eighth place team in a dynasty league of course you know he's he's trade bait at best you're 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 cashing him out um, for the best young player or draft pick you can get. Uh, but for those top teams having rich hill versus having a replacement level starter off the waiver wire it's, it's a big difference
0: everybody with a dynasty team wants to have a foundational catcher because it can pay dividends for so long, especially in two catcher leagues. And you have 20 of them in your top 400. And the top guy amongst them is Will Smith of the Dodgers at position number 65, just in front of Adley Rutschman, whom we talked about earlier. Uh, The youngest catcher on the list who's not currently in the major leagues because of injury is alejandro kirk eighth among catchers uh, number 209 overall down around carson kelly has grandal guys like that what is it about alejandro kirk's profile that gets him up as high as you put him
2: um you know he has just been he's been pushed so aggressively for a catcher especially i mean usually catchers uh it's it's one level per year like Full year at low A, full year at high A, full year at double A. Uh, Alejandro Kirk skipped levels on the way to the majors. He, I don't think they wanted him to, like, I think they wanted Reese McGuire to kind of work out as the second catcher early this season. Um, Kirk and McGuire kind of forced the issue of, of that not being the case. And you, you look at the contact rate for Kirk, For a 22-year-old catcher who's never played a double-A, never played a triple-A, to be striking out 13% of the time and walking 11% of the time while hitting for a little bit of power, um, just really impressive stuff. I mean, you don't really see that very often from a player at that position given the defensive uh, rigors there. So, um, you know, maybe that one was a, a bit out of left field, but I've just, Uh, really been impressed by how quickly he's adapted to hitting big league pitching given his position.
0: Uh, Five other catchers besides Adley Rutschman are on the catchers list that are prospects. Uh, Francisco Alvarez of the Mets was the highest at number 171. He's currently in A-ball ahead of guys like Gabriel Moreno of Toronto who's in Double A, Joey Bart of San Francisco who's actually been in the majors. What is it about uh, Francisco Alvarez of the Mets that pushes him ahead of guys with or at higher levels or have more experience?
2: Yeah I mean he's he's a total phenom. Uh, he you know aggressive assignments I mean he was at Uh, the GCL, the Gulf Coast League as a, as a 17 year old, and he was the best hitter in the league and he quickly had to get, uh, bumped up. Um, he, you know, 19 year old low a best hitter in the league had to get bumped up. Um, he hasn't really displayed any weaknesses yet. I mean, his, his defense behind the plate is probably his biggest weakness as a prospect as an overall prospect but i i think it'll be passable enough and i mean they might not even they might have ro- robo umps by the time he's ready for the major so it might not even matter but um he's his track record is just really really off the charts if he was a if he was like an outfielder or a shortstop he'd probably be a top 10 prospect in the game um those other guys joey bart i mean he certainly had pedigree uh but he the strikeouts have been an issue in the upper levels for him. And I, I wonder if he's going to be more than like a guy who's like 240 with 20 homers. Uh, Gabriel Moreno, this has been a big time breakout year. He's been incredibly impressive, uh, but he doesn't quite have the track record that stacks up with what uh, Alvarez has done at all his stops.
0: You told me before the call you ranked Shoei Otani, assuming we'd primarily be a hitter. The software at RotoWire lists him primarily as a pitcher, so there's a bit of confusion there. How would he have fared on your list, though, had you assumed he was going to be eligible at both or being considered as a two way player?
2: Well, I, I sort of I said he I, I ranked him, um, assuming he'd be started as a hitter, like just because that's sort of how I think you should view him. Um now he's a really good pitcher, but the, a guy who can go 40, 20, I think you want those counting stats in your lineup. Um, and I think you have to be willing to leave a lot of good starts on your bench. Um, maybe at a two start week, a rare two start week for an Angels pitcher. You plug him in. Maybe if uh, they've got an interleague series where he's not going to be able to DH, you plug him in at pitcher, but I just sort of wanted the, the readers to sort of understand, like, my thinking behind it is if I have Shohei Otani in a dynasty league, I'm really I'm valuing the hitting over the pitching because I just think the, the type of guy that can hit for that much power with that much speed is is a really rare breed
0: and staying with the angels and finally Mike Trout is still elite number 5 on your list of dynasty guys but we're definitely starting to see some cracks James i think you'll agree especially with the injuries uh, the stolen bases are all but disappearing at age 29 what risk do you think trout faces of falling fairly quickly versus maintaining his elite status
2: well he might not have he might not have even ranked 5th if these were for batting average leagues but he's still just uh otherworldly as an obp contributor uh, had a 466 obp before the injury this year i you know, don't expect him to be a 466 obp guy but i expect the obp to be up over 400 i mean that's that's kind of a, a skill that should age pretty well for him um, the, those plate skills uh the power i don't think is is really going anywhere um, now, if you have a really young core and you have Mike Trout, maybe you want to get someone who's more on the same timeline as, as the rest of your players. Um, but I still think, you know, I, is he going to miss time most years? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I think that level that he's at in an OBP league when he is healthy is still so high that I, I didn't want to have many lower than five.
0: Well, James, this has been really interesting and informative so far. Uh, let's take a break. You can go get some electrolytes. I'll go get myself some coffee. We'll resume after the National League and American League news. Sound like a plan? Absolutely. James Anderson is the lead prospect analyst and assistant baseball editor at Rotowire. He co-hosts Farm Fridays on Sirius XM Radio. And co host the RotoWire Prospect podcast. When we come back, our National League and American League news coming up. Nick and Ray next on Baseball HQ Radio. James Anderson is the lead prospect analyst and assistant baseball editor at RotoWire, the co-host of Farm Fridays on Sirius XM, and the co-host of the Rotowire Prospect Podcast as well. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports, Nick with the National League news, Ray with the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say baseballhq.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In facts and flukes performance validation. Analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, including the struggling Jorge Soler, who's killing my Tout Wars team. Some unexpected value from Eddie Rosario, who's helping my TGFBI team. And there's the promise of value from Cole Irvin. You know what I just thought of? The two of the greatest hockey broadcasters on Hockey Night in Canada here in Canada were Bob Cole and Dick Irvin. I wonder if that has anything to do with his name. In Game Theory, analyst Jeff Zimmerman updates an earlier piece on the odds of a player being traded. And Jeff, by the way, will be back on Baseball HQ Radio next week as our guest expert and in the Market Pulse column. Analyst Brad Coleman searches the fantasy baseball markets looking for buying opportunities with players like Ryan Montcastle and Patrick Wisdom. And later on Extra Innings, I'll be dispensing a little Patrick Wisdom myself. Those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's that player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
3: Hello, babe. Hello. You know me, don't you, babe? I can't face your face, but your shadow is very familiar.
4: I'm Lou Gehrig. Now do you remember me?
3: Remember you? After the past summer, I'll never forget you.
4: It's funny you didn't recognize me right away. I played on the same
3: team with you all season. Yes, but you were so close to me, I was afraid to look back to see who you were. I gave you a great race, didn't I, babe? Boy, you ran me raggy. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run?
4: It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting. And I got to thinking. Thinking with what? Never mind the fog with what. I went to college. Columbia, in fact. You've heard of Columbia, haven't you?
3: Sure, that's the college, and it's highly surrounded with delicatessen stores and Yankee scouts.
4: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Let's start in Cincinnati. Uh, Some good news there for Reds and Reds fans. First baseman Joey Votto has returned to the lineup. uh, Playing time today. Correspondent Tom Kephart covers the Reds. Uh, Of course, Joey Votto steps right back into the lineup, I should assume.
5: Yes, very definitely right back into the lineup. The His return was expected after a recent minor league rehab assignment showing signs of sustaining the recent power surge he displayed in 2020, though his typically high walk rate was in single digits well below the norm before he was sidelined by a left thumb fracture. Uh, His playing time, his return means that first-place loss for backup catcher Tyler Stevenson Uh, was his primary uh, primary first-place placement, and Felix Alex Blandino, who recently went on the AL with a hand fracture.
0: I don't know if you saw it, Nick, but uh, the Athletic, the fine uh, sports website, had a a story the other day about Joey Votto. It was basically the reporter just went and asked a bunch of people, what do you think of Joey Votto? And uh, it was very interesting. He's a very odd guy, you know, and it was kind of fun and funny. I guess he's a lot of fun to be around, very uh, uncharacteristically Free wheeling for a ball player, you know. Usually they're fairly buttoned up, especially in public. But Joey Votto's just a just a guy. It looks like he'd be a lot of fun to hang out with, and I guess Cincinnati fans will be glad they get to hang out with him at the ballpark, at least. Uh, meanwhile, however, bad news for Cincinnati: starting pitcher Sonny Gray is on the IL.
5: Prospect right-handed pitcher Tony Santillan is likely to be his rotation replacement. Uh, Santillan has been placing effectively in AAA. Reliever Art Warren provides a fresh bullpen arm. It would not necessarily be the roster casually when Santillion is eventually promoted. Uh, Warren hurled two scoreless innings and two appearances with two strikeouts, two walks, and earlier cameo exposure likely to be used in low-leverage situations at this point.
0: Yeah, Art Warren was the guy who was called up to replace Sonny Gray on the roster. Uh, how about that? Two appearances, two strikeouts, two walks. Uh, two innings, I guess. (laughs) uh, He likes the twos. Yeah, there there was an old uh, baseball announcer when Vancouver had a single-A team, the Vancouver Mounties. This is going way back, and the baseball announcer, whenever there was a situation where there was two out, two on, two balls, two strikes, he'd say, the deuces are wild. So I guess the uh, deuces were wild for Art Warren. I have to say, Art Warren doesn't sound like uh, a super exciting guy to be looking at for fantasy purposes.
5: Yeah, I think you're right. Not somebody I'll be looking to uh, target for my rosters. I don't think.
0: In St. Louis, their ace starting pitcher, Jack Flaherty, was on the I.L. There was some talk that he might be able to get back sooner rather than later, but the latest news is Jack Flaherty is likely to miss another full month, according to playing time today and Phil Hurts.
5: Yeah, the news continues to be bad for Flaherty. Uh, Fantasy managers would be wise not to count on much from uh, Flaherty before August. Uh, it's not clear yet how St. Louis will handle his absence. They've lost, also lost uh, Dakota Hudson for the season. Uh, Miles McCullis uh, may soon be in the same boat. They've relied on John Gant and Johan Oviedo with fixed results. Gant has a 2.63 ERA, but xERA era nearly three runs higher, uh, a walk rate of 15%, and a strikeout minus walk rate of only 2%. Uh, Oviedo has been up and down several times between Memphis and St. Louis. He's already made five starts. Aside from PQS-3 in his first start, his other starts have featured three PQS-1s and one PQS-0. Uh, One name that has been bandied about is Matthew Liebertor, the uh, Cardinals' number three prospect. Liebertor is currently scheduled to head to Tokyo as a member of the uh, U.S. Olympic team, but St. Louis could end that dream by calling him up. Uh, They may need to. Things are, are weak in the St. Louis rotation at the moment.
0: Some good news for St. Louis, however, a shortstop, Paul DeYoung is back in the lineup after an extended stay on the injured list. He has a rib injury, and it seems to be better, and he should be back as soon as this weekend.
5: He should take over as a starting shortstop. Uh, Mundo Sosa slides into a utility role. Uh, actually, fantasy managers have other options to consider using him, as DeYoung looks uh, really kind of rusty in his four-game rehab extended triple AAA.
0: Yeah, I took a look at that. I have uh, DeYoung on a roster and I was wondering about activating him 1 for 10 in his minor league stint. He had a double and two strikeouts. Not a, not a really super impressive line, so it, it, you know, as if you're having trouble getting back into the swing of things in Triple A and then you come to the mi- to the major leagues, boy oh boy, if you think you got rust then wait till you see what happens when you face major league pitching.
5: Yeah, not a guy I would have confidence in immediately. I'd I'd like to see some of the rust rubbed off before I put him back in my starting lineup.
0: Moving west, uh, the San Francisco Giants got two pieces of bad news. First, San Francisco third baseman Evan Longoria now is going to be out till around the All-Star break, according to Jock Thompson in playing time today.
5: Yeah, not not good news at all is on Longoria. He was involved in a sudden injury in a collision with teammate Brandon Crawford, and now figures to be out at least until sometime Around or maybe even after the All-Star break, uh, Wilmer Flores was in the lineup at third base on Sunday, June the sixth, and finished to get a playing time uptick, uh, along with perhaps uh, Mauricio Dubon. With Brandon Belt since they been returned from his own IL stint, we've shifted a lot of the San Francisco playing time around, and would suggest that folks look at the uh, at the team pages to see what we're what we're thinking is going to happen right now. But keep an eye on the lineup because there'll be some changes happening in San Francisco as they figure out how to handle all of this.
0: And boy, speaking of having to follow the uh, team page at Baseball HQ on San Francisco, they put outfielder Alex Dickerson on the I.L. with an upper back strain, but this hardly clarifies what's going on in that outfield in San Francisco. It's a cast of thousands.
5: It is indeed. We've docked Dickerson 15% of his playing time, uh, and we cost anybody trying to get outfield production from the San Francisco outfield to really think about it. It's been a revolving door all season. On Wednesday, the uh, Giants called up an outfield was made up of Lamont Wade, Steven Dugar and Mike Talkman, none of whom was even on the Giants opening day roster. The only sure thing for playing time in the Giants outfield is Mike Mike Yastrzemski and uh, with nobody else even slated for half of a full-timer's playing time.
0: And in that kind of situation, I guess we could advise people keep an eye and see if any of those outfielders steps up with a little hot streak or really establish himself as a flag bearer in one of those outfield positions other than Yastrzemski, as you mentioned. But so far, none of them really has. It's been hot, cold, hit, miss, uh, nothing really to get too excited about. I know that we had some high hopes when Talkman came over from the Yankees, but really nobody has stood out here.
5: No, they haven't. No one really has stood out at all in the, in the San Francisco outfield. And it's going to be very difficult for them to replace Longoria's production.
0: Also in San Francisco, a left-handed pitcher named Sam Long made a somewhat under-the-radar debut on Wednesday. Four innings, one earned run, seven strikeouts, one walk. That's not bad. Uh, who Who is Sam Long? That's why. That's a good, a good question at this point. <laughs> Thank you.
5: Yeah, Long was drafted by the Rays in the 18th round in 2016. And they had him throw a sidearm, but ended up releasing him, so he left baseball to pursue a career as an EMT. But, you know, bus ball gets its hooks in a guy, and long worked hard to get back into game shape. The White Sox signed him based solely on a 22-second video posted on Twitter. A solid 2019 for single-A Canopolis, uh, 306-104, 29% strikeout rate, 7% walks in 97 innings. Not too bad at all. Missed 2020, of course, but was pitching very well in 2021 in the minors, jumping from Double A AA to Triple A and compiling 109.079 decimals, 44% strikeout rate, 6% walks, 18% swinging strike rate.
0: Those are the kind of stats that will work. A 199 ERA, especially even at even at Triple A or the combined Double AA, A Triple A, is not anything to sneeze at. What does his pitch arsenal look like, Nick? He works with five pitches,
5: primarily a 92 to 95 mile per hour four-seamer and a mid-to-high 80s curveball. Both can be above average. Uh, his changeup is just average, but it has very good velocity separation off the fastball. Fighter and sinker are works in progress, though he does occasionally use the slider as a put-away pitch.
0: And the $64,000 question, Nick, how does Sam Long look as a possible help to a fantasy team this year?
5: He will likely operate in a swingman bulk reliever role to start. but With his arsenal, he could quickly garner starts if his stuff is really ready for prime time. Because he's come on so seemingly out of nowhere, there haven't been a lot of eyes on long. But he looks like he could have at least a number four starter projection, perhaps more if he pushes either the four seam or the curve to plus. He's still only 25 years old, and he could be worth targeting, especially in longer-term leagues.
0: Yeah, these are the kind of guys that you like to take a look at, but I have to say, Nick, I think I'd probably want to see more before I committed a roster slot to him, unless you're in one of those dynasty formats where you've got 60 roster slots or something like that. But uh, most uh, fantasy players are in leagues with uh, limited reserve options, limited slots in the lineup, so you have to be very uh, circumspect before you decide to throw the dice on a guy like Sam Long, I think.
5: Yeah, I think you're right. He's not somebody you'd want to throw away a... a, uh... Uh, a good, a good, or even a, perhaps even a marginal player on at this point, but certainly worth keeping an eye on, and and very much under the radar at this point.
0: Well, Nick, you play in a league that has a fairly big roster, a dynasty type of league. Uh, what what would make you want to look at Sam Long and add him to your roster, especially at the expense of somebody else, unless you have a somebody else who's uh, an obvious drop?
5: Well. You know, you're, uh, at this point, if you're if you're down in strikeouts minus walks, that seven one was pretty good. Uh, it looked like he could he could be good for some innings if he's going to pitch four innings and outing. Uh, those are the kind of things you have to look. I think at where you are uh, and, and what you're after. The ratios may not be too bad this year if you're if you're looking at. I mean, the uh, pitching is up all across the league in terms of uh, producing good numbers. So, uh, you know, it's the kind of guy I'm going to look at if I if I can get him for zero fab dollars, maybe but I'm sure wouldn't spend a lot of money on him at this point.
0: Yeah. I think the question isn't so much the cost. I could probably get him for next to nothing. As you suggest, I think the the question is the opportunity cost, which is, uh, as I said, the, the cost of, you've got to remove somebody from your roster in order to make room for a guy like this. But I play in one league where I have a 50 or 48 person roster. It's a draft and hold type of situation. And, uh, I can't draft or hold anybody now because those rosters are locked in right when you start. But if I had a roster like this, it's almost inevitable that some of the guys will have failed. Some of them will be injured for the year. You you should end up with some kind of, uh, of openings on your roster through the season, and then you're going to fill them as they occur. But usually when you're filling them from the free agent pool or the waiver wire, some of the guys you're filling with don't turn out to be all that great. So there are going to be opportunities, I suspect.
5: Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be opportunities there. So certainly someone I'm going to probably track for a, for a week or so and see what happens, how they use him, uh, what's going to be happening. If he winds up in a starting role, suddenly things are going to, he's going to become very prominent on the waiver wire, I would think, very quickly.
0: Yeah, and it's a good park for pitchers, too. Uh, finally, Nick, uh, Victor Robles in Washington is still disappointing fantasy managers uh, after a pretty good 2019 where he really got onto the radar and then all of a sudden 2020 he struggled and 2021 he hasn't really stepped up too much. Uh, Alan DeLeonardis covers the National League East in playing time tomorrow roster forecasting. Uh, Alan notes that Robles has been, and this is his word, craptastic in 2021. A two twenty four batting average, but a three thirty eight on on-base percentage. But a 306 slugging percentage, uh, 15 runs, no homers, six RBIs, six stolen bases, three caught stealing. Then he says, while some Robles truthers, he calls them, still believe that Robles can or will approach the heights he achieved in 2019, the more immediate question is, what are the chances Robles even finishes the year as the starting center fielder in Washington, given how he's struggling?
5: Yeah, this year's slash line is largely in line with last year's, which was a monstrosity. Last year's 220, 293. 15, but just one important difference. He's managed to double his walk rate from 5% in 2020 to 10% so far this season. Uh not to split hairs, but some of that boost in walks has come from being pitched around because he's batting eighth. Uh 50 plate appearances in the eighth slot in 2021 versus 15 in the uh plate appearances there in 2020. And batting eighth means they're gonna get around him the pitcher. Uh he does have six stolen bases, but three caught stealing. So success rate often means a red light, and if you're in a a league that subtracts cost stealing from stolen bases, that's pretty much worthless. Uh, More concerning, perhaps, is the season-high 28 stolen bases in 2019 came with a 31% stolen base opportunity rate, which is down to 25% this season, probably because of all those plate appearances in the eighth spot At that rate, you'll have a tough time cranking 20 stolen bases for the year.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that decline in stolen base opportunity. Also, might reflect the fact the management doesn't want him stealing bases because he gets caught so often.
5: It may indeed. I mean, if, if he's getting caught uh, caught that much, then he's just taking potential runs off the board when he tries to move up a base.
0: Yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, what's really gone missing is the power. No home runs, as I mentioned this season. What does Alans say about the power outage for Victor Robles?
5: Well, you know, this is where this is where you need to to look underneath the, the hood a little bit. No home runs this season. You're right. You think that guy has no power. But a 130 expected power index in May over 49 at-bats. Currently working on a 193 expected power index and 19 at-bats in June. Add to that a 108 hard contact index in May, followed by a 110 hard contact index in June. And it looks like he's gotten hosed by a 0% home run fly rate. Um, Most obvious reason is the ball, whereas 2019 was the year of the happy fun ball the 2021 ball has decreased of offense league-wide. We should still expect 2021 Robles to begin earning some better results based on the skill he displayed. all better than the fine 2019 season. 10% walk rate versus 6%. 0.255 versus 0.43. 64 hard contact versus 77. 38% fly ball rate, 37% fly ball rate. 85% expected power index versus 57. So, you know, the, the skills are, are up a bit. Uh, And so you begin to look at that and think, this guy's really having some terrible luck.
0: So back to the question, what are the chances that Robles will finish the year as the starting center fielder in Washington?
5: Pretty good, actually. Uh, The Nationals don't have anyone else at the major league level who matches up with Robles defensively, and there aren't any hot prospects or even lukewarm prospects knocking on the door at AAA. So until he can cobble together a hot streak, he'll stay down at the bottom of the order. But the skills suggest that better times could be coming very soon.
0: All right, Nick, uh, might be worth looking at Victor Robles, I guess. This would be a buy-low opportunity if you're interested in buying it all. Uh, Appreciate you helping us out, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show.
6: Glad to be here as always, PD.
0: Let's start in Texas where one of the surprise stories of the year was Ian Kennedy turning up as the closer after a spring training where most of the candidates got hurt or underperformed and they finally said, let's try this Kennedy guy. He had success in the past and he was doing a very good job in the limited opportunities to get saves in Texas. He's gone to the 10-day IL now, however, with a mild left hamstring strain. The team recalled a right-hander named Spencer Patton from AAA, they said they don't expect Kennedy to miss more than the minimum 10 days. Rod Trusdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. Who figures to be in line for those very few Texas saves?
6: Yeah, it's uh, probably not all that impactful a situation if we're looking at 10 days to two weeks for Kennedy. Let me start off by asking you, PD, I wish we kept metrics on this, but is this our most talked about bullpen this year? I think it might be. I mean, if you think about it, we went from Leclerc to Jonathan Hernandez to Kennedy and then. Jolie Rodriguez, and we were talking about DeMarcus Evans not too long ago when he got called up and was doing some good work. But for all of that, we've got a new name today. I think the the new name to talk about is uh, Lefty Brett Martin, who might be as good a play as anybody for the next couple of weeks while Kennedy's out here.
0: Yeah, he's been pretty good. Uh, 93% strand rate is kind of not concerning exactly. Maybe he's just good at stranding runners, but it's – raises his expected ERA beyond the two-ish sort of level that he's at now.
6: Yeah, it, and what, what, when we say that he might be the guy, and we're basing that based on what we're seeing in the early post-Kennedy usage patterns here. Uh, he started the 10th inning in a home game uh, the day after Kennedy went on the DL, so it looked like you know that's about as high leverage a situation as you can get. So that's the Leaf reading that makes us think he might be the top of, top of the pecking order, but this might be a case where, you know, the way te- that Texas team is going, and if uh, if Kennedy's only out for 10 to 14 days, then, you know, we may only see two or three more save ops here.
0: Mind you, in a lot of leagues, two or three save ops, and if they're all converted, can make uh, the difference between seven points in the category and eight. Uh, in Seattle, the Mariners bowed to the inevitable earlier this year when they promoted super prospect Jared Kalanick, and now they've bowed to the inevitable again, sending Kalanick back to the minors. Uh, just short of 100 plate appearances, Ray, 096 batting average, a 185 OBP, a 193 slug, two homers, six RBIs, three stolen bases. Baseball HQ's valuation system for 5x5 five five has Jared Kelnick so far this year under replacement value, minus $2. Uh, the team also activated infielder Shed Long. Uh, Rod Trusdell covers the Mariners for playing time today. So what's the fallout from the Kelnick demotion?
6: Yeah, it, you know, there was some chatter on Twitter that was a Twitter thread I was watching the other day. It was pretty interesting talking about whether, you know, there was any valid reason to send him Kelnick down or whether it's actually better for his development or whether they should, uh, should, should have let him fight through it and, you know, kind of what the process was or how they made this decision. And I don't know, it looks to me like he was just so far underwater. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't know here. You know, after 0 for 39, you can only imagine how badly the kid is pressing. And uh, you know who knows what the what the assets are on hand if there's a Triple uh, A hitting instructor that he's got a better relationship with or knows his swing better who might be able to reset him or maybe he just needs to go down to Triple A and hit a couple of balls balls hard again and feel better about life and then he'll be back you know fairly quickly to try this again uh, you know I'm not as quick to cast dispersions about the way this is being handled here but. You know, after 100 bats of 096, I think it's pretty reasonable to conclude that this just ain't working. Let's try something else.
0: That's exactly what I thought. And uh, this is a situation where if Jared Kellenick finds his way onto uh, waiver wires or free agent pools, the thing to do is going to be to watch him pretty closely in AAA, I think, and see if he seems to turn it around, because I believe that the Mariners, now that they've started his service clock, have a kind of an incentive to get him back into the major leagues, and, and as you said, continuing his development at that level, because they don't think they're competing this year, or maybe they have fantasies about catching a wild card or something, but really what they're looking at is down the road, and this is the time in, in, a, in a team's development curve when you have to focus on the player's development curve.
6: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's clearly in the Mariners' best interests for 2022 to get Kelnick as many productive at bats in the majors as they can, and that clearly what they've determined right now is that after over 39, at some point these at bats become not productive. So we're going to send him somewhere to get rebaselined or whatever. But after that, sure, he, I would fully expect him to be up for the entire second half, and sure, he might hit 220. You know, we'll see. We'll see how much of a slingshot effect he can get from. Uh, going back down to hit triple A pitching and work on his fundamentals, et cetera. But there's, you know, for I would expect him to be up for a big chunk of the second half. And really, you know, what we saw in these hundred bats shouldn't change our long-term expectations. The question as always is how long does it take him to to achieve the the ceiling? But there's, there's nothing disqualifying about these hundred bats to say that he can't come up and have a really good second half. And to your point, if you got dropped in your week sure i would absolutely stash him and plan on riding him for the second half and hope to get the better the better side of the uh, the next hundred at bats as opposed to what we've seen so far
0: and of course there's you mentioned the long-term expectations and there's always this push pull whether in fantasy terms or in real baseball terms between long-term expectations and short-term needs. And, you know, you could have the highest opinion in the world of Jared Kalanick as a fantasy manager or as a team manager, but if you look at uh, a guy like Kalanick and you say he's just not ready, then you can't afford to bring him up and take an 089 batting average for the whole year or even a 150 batting average, you know, or 178. Suppose he doubles his batting average in the second half. Still not helpful. And you have to be aware of the difference between this guy's going to be good in four years versus this guy's going to be Get good in four weeks, correct?
6: And for sure, the Mariners are doing the same calculus themselves. And but you, if you look at the way the playoff race is shaping up in the AL, the bar for the wild cards is pretty darn high now. With the Red Sox and Astros being you know nine, ten games over five hundred, so even if the Mariners keep plotting along at five hundred, you know it won't by the trade deadline. You would think they're going to be you know nine, ten games behind that wildcard pace and will freely be able to play Kelnick. To your point, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a fantasy asset right away, but the opportunity will come back to him quickly, at least for for him to show a a different thought.
0: In the meantime, Ray, uh, Taylor Trammell, another rookie who struggled in his first go at the bigs, should pick up a fair amount of outfield time with Kelnick down. Uh, What are we expecting from Taylor Trammell?
6: Yeah, Kelnick's down and let's not forget Kyle Lewis is hurt too. So they're actually a, you know, sort of a couple of uh, substitute spots in this outfield right now. Trammell, uh, you know, ha- ha- he was the first opportunity before they called up Kelnick, and he didn't do much in the month of April, which is what uh, opened the door for Kelnick. So he's back for another bite at the apple. Uh, it looks a little better so far in a you know, squinting at uh, 28 at bats this month. He's uh, he's hitting 250 with an 800 OPS and. Making more, making a good bit more contact. So there's some promise there, but we got to see it for more than 28 at bats. Uh, you know, the other interesting name out there right now with Lewis Hurt is uh, Jake Fraley, who's also getting a good chunk of playing time, and he's got a really weird stat line in that uh, he's walking all over the place. Uh, you know, he's got uh, you know a, like a one-to-one walk-to-strikeout ratio, with both with big numbers. He's he's uh, walking. Uh, where's the oh, he's walking 31% of the time, which is just insane. Uh, again, only throw over 35 at bats, it's like nine walks and nine strikeouts or something like that. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's a really weird stat line. He's he's a guy that he, HQ projections have liked for a while. Uh, injuries and opportunity have not really aligned for him, but in those 35 at bats, he's got two homers, 10 RBIs, three stolen bases. And a 500 OBP, which I, I've heard plays in this league.
0: <laughs> I was going to say he's got a 310 OBP if you leave his hits out.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do. And, <laughs> and you know, obviously none of this is sustainable, but it's an interesting profile. And if he, uh, you know, if he puts together the patience, the power, the little bit of speed, uh, you know, there's opportunity for him too for as long as Lewis is out. So uh, you know, both of these guys, Trabel and Fraley, are at least short-term assets while Kelnick tries
0: to write himself and Lewis
6: tries to get healthy.
0: And uh, meanwhile, I mentioned they recalled Shed Long. What about him? Yeah, he'll probably fit back into the, uh, you know, the second base
6: mix there. They've got a couple of things they can do. You know, there's been some Dylan Moore there, some Ty France. But both of those guys are versatile, too. Moore could go back to the outfield to take some time from Fraley or uh, Trammell as needed. France can move around the infield, go over to third, fill in at first a little bit. You know, we're, we're having White's been out. And... Uh, you know, they've been running a uh, cast of characters over there. So, playing time of bounds here, it seems like anybody there's room for everybody, especially if any any one of them decides to hit. So
0: Yeah, playing time of bounds, but it's a zero-sum game. Every at-bat somebody gets, somebody else loses, loses uh, the same amount. So, uh, balancing that out is going to be a task for the Seattle front office to figure out and their manager to figure out. But at the same time, it's something that all of us who are fantasy managers need to keep a careful eye on because in these situations, sometimes one of the horses just breaks free of the field and, and takes off running. And the next thing you know, he's a, you know, 15 lengths in front, like secretariat at the Belmont.
6: Exactly. And you know, keeping in mind the long-term outlook for the Mariners here, you know, the the younger guys, the ones who might be part of the future are probably going to be the default options or the ones who get more rope. I I think Long fits into that. He's a little bit of an older prospect at 25, but, you know, he's got a chance to at least, they at least need to evaluate and see if he could be there the second baseman on their next good team. So he probably gets a longer look at second base and the same goes for Trammell and and Trammell over Fraley in the outfield if it comes to that for, for the same reason.
0: In Baltimore, Ray, the Orioles placed their ace starter left-hander John Means on the IL. Bad news, listen to this. A strained left shoulder. Pitching shoulder gets a strain. That's tough news. They recalled Zach Lowther from the Miners. Phil Hertz covers the Orioles for playing time today. Definitely a blow for Baltimore and for his fantasy managers. In 12 starts, 228 ERA, 083 whip, uh, 4 wins, and a 21% strikeout minus walk. John Means was getting the job done, and so this is, uh, this is a real blow.
6: It really is. He, uh, It's funny. I'm looking at Means' uh, comment from the baseball forecaster this past offseason now, where we threw an upside of a 350 ERA and 180 Ks on him. And he scoffed and said, Ah, 350. I, I could do that in one run less. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, gotta, 250 gotta, make it. Yeah. I, I, just, I, I hear you're two, 350 and raise you 250. But, you know, to, to be fair, some of that was, uh, you know, good luck indicators, too. Means had a 20% hit rate, 89% strand rate. So his expected ERA was just a pick under four at 392. So it might be one of these cases where the injury hides the regression. We'll wait and see how long Means is out for and whether he comes back. And, uh, you know, hopefully he's not out for the rest of the season with a straight shoulder and that we see a good another good stretch of him in the second half. But uh, the, right now, this is one of those profiles where, you know, for the longer term, I would be a little nervous just because the market is likely to value that to twenty eighty ERA and 083 whip. And we're seeing that the underlying metrics, while good, are not nearly that good. And anytime you have that gap, you worry about it being overvalued. So uh, we will wait and see how long he's out and what the uh, wh- wh- whether the uh, the regression gods
0: find him in time. A Couple of back end starters figure to pick up some starts in the meantime. Adam Plutko and Dean Kramer are on the Baseball HQ depth chart for the Orioles. Uh, any interest for fantasy managers in either of those guys?
6: I think Lather was just up for the day. He threw two innings. Uh, pull out a couple runs and a blowout win. Uh, Plotko and Kramer are the more interesting guys, as you say. Uh, Pletko has a 460 ERA, an expected ERA sitting around five, not much K upside there either. Kramer but that's good compared to Kramer, who's got an ERA up at around seven, and then an and another X ERA that's in like the mid fives. So, you know, means was sort of the exception to the stay away from all the Baltimore pitching rules. So now the Baltimore pitching rule becomes an absolute stay away you know the one uh, the one exception to prove the rule is now out the window for at least a little while
0: It is. uh, Speaking of pitchers in Kansas City, uh, this is kind of where the John Means story overlaps a little bit with the Kellenick story because the Royals called up their right-handed pitching prospect Jackson Coar and optioned uh, right-hander Jacob Junis. That was earlier this week, and they also designated right-hander Jake Newberry. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today, and then subsequently Coar did not exactly impress with his first outing in the big leagues on Monday night.
6: Yeah, this this is interesting. I don't know that two data points make a trend but, uh, you know, Kowar had a really rough night and, you know, couldn't, from what I read, I didn't watch the start, but from what I read, it you know, was pretty clearly overthrowing, couldn't spot his fastball, gave up four runs, didn't make it out of the first inning against the Angels. And it reminds me of the pounding that teammate and fellow prospect Daniel Lynch took three or four weeks ago in his first start. And, you know, someone's got, at some point, with a, with a data size of two, someone's got to ask, you know, what are they feeding these guys before their first start? Or are they just letting them, you know, putting them in a rubber room for four hours to bounce off the walls before they go out to the mound? Someone's got to calm these guys down. Um, and, you know, he'll it, it, get more more opportunities. So maybe just a case of getting the first one out of the system. But, you know, there's an overall theme here going back to Kelnick, that, uh, you know, whether it's because all these, these are guys who worked at the alternate site last year and lost so much time or just the way things are going in the majors, these days, compared to Triple A, it seems like the Triple A jump to the majors is harder, is as harder harder than it's ever been. And we're seeing, you know, on the on the hitter side, you know, Kelnick struggle to, you know, go going over 39. And meantime, Triple A pitchers like Keller and Daniel Lynch are coming up, and you know, barely you give it up like five, seven runs, you know, per inning. And you know, none of that is sustainable. But you know, for the long term, all of these guys should be good. We just have to wa- watch as they try to try to make this transition because it's Really, really hard.
0: And we have developed the sense over the last few years in fantasy, I feel like, Ray, where we have sort of grown to expect that somebody who gets called up is going to have an impact, make a splash relatively quickly in Major League Baseball. And for the longest time, that wasn't the case. Then it started to become the case. And now maybe the tide is ebbing again. And we're starting to learn that, yeah, it's hard. And the fact of the lack of development in 2020, particularly, is making it even harder.
6: Yeah, for sure, it's you know there's there's a great research piece to be done in here, and I'll have to see if I can find some time to do it this summer, or better yet, I um option it out to one of our crack researchers to look at. But as we're having this conversation, I'm reminded of the uh, the Fabapalooza weekend back in 2019 that was roughly probably like around now, when I remember Willie Calhoun and Keston Cura and um, but a couple other guys were you know there were like five or six premium prospects that came up and you know drew all the fab out of all the leagues around this time in 2019 right and as it turned out for the balance of the season like pretty much all of them suck. <laughs> <laughs> so you know is there a you know is there is, are there ripple effects here for how we manage our fab or how we value prospects in their first exposure to the majors it probably bears revisiting but like we were saying there are so many variables can we draw any lines between what happened in 2018 or 2019 and what's happening now because of what happened in between with the pandemic and the shutdown and all these guys missing so much development time, you know, team's motivations are maybe a little bit different now because, because the service time issues and the looming CBA and people might be making these decisions based on different criteria than they did a year or two ago. There are a lot of elements here, but you know, the eyeball test is certainly telling us both that, uh, these guys are having a hard time making the leap, right?
0: Yes, they are. And uh, it has affected my fab management. In the past, I was one of those guys who kind of hoarded their fab waiting for the big call-ups to come. And then uh, in my American League-only format, of course, you're saving for the eventuality that some big star gets traded across leagues, which is a, I still think is a relatively useful ploy, but in my mixed leagues, I have absolutely abandoned the idea that I'm going to get some kind of superstar at the first or second big call-up points, uh, you know, right, right around now. And then maybe around the all-star break or shortly after, I just don't trust them. As much as i used to at at any rate and so i will go go hard and go early because i think uh, i stand a better chance of getting a guy in free agency early because a lot of my opponents are holding and hoarding and maybe i get a guy and he has five months on my roster instead of three
6: yeah i've got a variation of the same strategy and this has sort of long been my mode but Uh, More so than ever. I'm very much a dink and dunker on the fab bidding, especially in the mixed leagues. I'll throw out, you know, I'm probably bidding three, four, or five guys, roster spots a week, but all low budget. And like, especially with the prospects, the trend we're talking about, the closers, the fact that closer jobs turn over all the time and, you know, nobody really seems to hold them. Like, I can't find anything anymore. I could go weeks months on end without being provoked to make a significant bid right so to your point why hoard the why hoard the money there's no it seems like there's no week coming where I'm gonna spend 30 40 50 percent of my fab for the season on one guy so the as a result I'm just turning more roster spots and every week I'm trolling for a new closer and waiting or a new fifth outfielder or a new multi-position guy for my bench or whatever it is and you know half the time the next week I throw them back and try again. But every now and then i latch on one and you know and like oh this guy i i got him right before he popped for 12 bucks out of my 1000 fab and now he's staying in my lineup for a while and i'm, I'm managing it that way but mostly to your point because you know I, I can't find anything to really open the wallet on
0: yeah i go much the same way in the in the 15 teamer that i'm in i budget 40 dollars a week for fab mm-hmm. spending if I I spend it all so be it if I don't I just add it on to the next weeks and kind of lift it up that way I have actually it's a little less than 40 because I I do have a little pot for the end game that I want to kind of be in position to be competitive but it's really hard because other guys in the league are not following that kind of strategy they're saving all their money for the end game and so there's no point in saving you know 200 out of your thousand when somebody else is saving 900 out of his for his own competitive analysis reasons so I, I think you just have to uh, adopt the idea that the fab budget is a two part thing the weekly or monthly management, and then the long term management. And then you have to decide how you're going to apportion your funds and then spend according to those budgets and, and stick with it. And I, I think that's a, a pretty good approach.
6: Yeah, I agree. I'm very much in the same mindset. And, you know, it also having a budget and a philosophy like that that you apply every week. Even if you've got a, you know, sort of a slush fund or a rainy day fund on the side, you know, keeps you from getting sucked into shiny new toy syndrome and a guy pops up on Thursday and hits two home runs and you're like, I have to have him. <laughs> Almost always, if you think you have to have somebody, you're making a mistake.
0: Uh, Adolus Garcia might have been the exception this year, although he's cooled sure. off considerably. But anybody who spent heavily on him won the game, and and it's guys like that who keep the illusion flowing. Right, we start to learn, and we gradually come to realize that there's very few incidents where that happens. Then it happens, we get all excited and think I'm going to get the next one, and get right fall right back into that same trap. So uh, Fab is a really good exercise in discipline and financial management in fantasy, and I think. Players who do it well probably benefit. Uh, While we're in Kansas City, Ray, I just wanted to ask you about another move that kind of got me thinking i don't quite understand what kansas city's doing not the first time i've said that in my life but uh, they optioned outfielder edward olivares speaking of guys who attracted big fab bids on wednesday and recalled a pitcher right-hander carlos hernandez Uh, olivares was a fab darling when he was called up in the first place Uh, what should his fantasy managers be thinking now and what is kansas city doing with getting rid of an outfielder to call up a pitcher i don't understand the balance there
6: yeah, I'm confused by this, too. And our Royals watchers and our forums were confused by this, too. I think if this is actually the second time that Alvarez has been up and down. So he's been up twice and down three times now in the span of 10 days or so. And so, I mean, I guess he's clear, that clearly puts him as the 27th man on the 26th man roster. seems to be how they think of him. But you know, we talked, I guess, last week or the week before when he got his first call up that he was kind of lighting up A over – 90 at bats or something like that, and we were interested to see whether he could carry that over. And I guess the only conclusion I could draw here is the Royals are less interested to see if he can carry it over. So you know it's very hard on a on a shuttle here to try to for Olivares to try to make anything stick. I mean he's been he's gotten five for 18 in a couple of games, but only one for seven in the last week before he sent got sent down. So you know he wasn't uh, tearing the cover off the ball, but he can he can hardly say that he got a uh, fair opportunity either so you know there are still opportunities here there are some non-productive bats in this lineup so um we'll probably see him again but who knows for how long
0: or when, uh, their outfield currently, Michael A. Taylor in center, I think Ben has been really good in left field. There's no danger that he's going to lose any time to an Oliveras-type character. Hunter Dozier has had a fairly rough year, including some injuries, and their fourth outfielder, I guess, is Gerard Dyson, although I've seen Jorge Soler out there, and Jorge Soler's having a, a really a year from hell. It seems like Oliveras has some paths back to playing time, Maybe maybe worth a stash.
6: Yeah, I I think you'll – this is another case where you would think that as the summer goes on that either by injury or just by wanting to look at different people that Olivares will be back and get a real opportunity. Where it comes is a little hard to say. Like you say, Soler has been just absolutely brutal. uh, Soler's interesting. I've got him on a couple of teams, so I've been been watching him a little more carefully. And he was sitting uh, last weekend, so 10 or 11 days ago, with a – Groin strain or hamstring strain or something like that. And he sat four or five days in a row. And if you squint, things have been a little bit better since then. I mean, he's still hitting a buck 67 in June, but his contact rate is way up. So, uh, you know, and that stabilizes fairly quickly. Not to say 18 at bats is enough time for it to stabilize, but, uh, you know, that's a bit 78% contact is actually a big jump over where he was at 63, 64% in April, May. So, I'm watching for another couple of weeks, as I'm sure the Royals are, to see uh, if that sticks, because if Soler gets back to putting the ball in play, you got to think the power will follow fairly soon. But if he keeps hitting the buck 50 and the contact rate goes back down again, he probably becomes a candidate for a Phantom DL stint or a sell-low trade or something, what well, were an outright release and give someone like Olivera a look. But I would think Soler's got a little more rope to sort this out.
0: Well, from your lips to God's ear, because I have Solero on my American League tout team, and he's really not been useful for the 20-plus dollars I remember having had to invest. Uh, in Cleveland, the team recalled uh, first baseman D.H. Bobby Bradley and DFA Jake Bowers, who had a two seventy seven on base, I think, a couple of home runs in 113 plate appearances, so wasn't getting the job done. Uh, what do we think of Bobby Bradley as a replacement in the Cleveland lineup?
6: Yeah, so the first base and corner outfields in Cleveland have been brutal all year. Bowers was certainly a contributor to that. Uh, we talked previously about Owen Miller getting called up and how we, even though he's a middle infielder by trade, that, that was really just an attempt to spark the lineup. So I think Bradley's the next lever toward the same goal there, try to breathe some life into the bottom of this lineup and get it turning over a little more often. So Bradley should take over as the primary first baseman. He's a left-hander. So with the good side of the platoon, he should play 75% of the time or something along those lines. Uh, he hit a home run on June 6th, with, uh, which is you know, which was his first start at first base. You know, stop me if you've heard this before. He's contact challenged like, you know, everybody else in the game. Uh, so, you know, expect a bunch of swing and miss, but there is some power there. Uh, you know, Bowers got a long look this year, and he's gotten a few good looks before that. So pretty clearly he had – played his way out of the, uh, you know, had exhausted all of his opportunities there. So now they're going to give Bradley a shot, and I would imagine this would be a pretty likely opportunity
3: too.
0: So how much would uh, you invest in Fab for Bobby Bradley, assuming he was available?
6: Yeah, I, I think I, I did get him in uh top mix last weekend, and I think I bid uh, 44 out of my thousand dollar fab budget I think I have 600 or so left of that so I guess I spent a a tick under 10 percent of my fab on him
0: that seems reasonable yeah in Chicago the White Sox activated outfielder Adam Engel from the 10-day IL and calling it the 10-day IL is a bit of a misnomer he's been out since the start of the year with a hamstring issue Uh, the team also placed outfielder Billy Hamilton on the 10-day he's got an oblique strain Uh, how does this all shake out I assume Adam Engel plays A lot.
6: Yeah, he he almost has to play. You think about the attrition in that White Sox outfield from uh, Eloy Jimenez in the preseason, and then Luis Mm -hmm. Roberts. uh, You know, a little bit uh, sometime after opening day, both of those guys out for a long time, and they've been they've been masquerading. uh, Billy Hamilton out there some, Larry Garcia out there some, Adam Eaton out there some, and now with Hamilton out, Engel looks like he's gonna you Know if not be the clear lead center fielder, at least you know, at halftime, maybe a little bit more, uh, which is not all that exciting from a skills perspective. Uh, you, you know, he's flashed a little bit of power and speed in the background in the past, uh, but you know, he last year he had a decent batting average, but that was you know, he hit 295 in 88 at bats. Geez, That what a weird year 2020 was. Um, but uh, you know that was propped up by some uh, good luck on balls and play you know more for his career which is a thousand at bats now he's been a 221 hitter with 21 homers 29 stolen bases over the last four years so again contact challenge smattering of power and speed but he's probably gonna bat at the bottom of this lineup but it's a good lineup so there's a there's certainly the chance for some counting stats there which is uh you know, if the batting average is not brutal, then, uh, you know, he's, he's got a chance to be a positive contributor.
0: And it's not like Larry Garcia, who's the sort of incumbent center fielder, is knocking the cover off the ball, although he hasn't been a complete wash either.
6: No, he's a, you know, I, I got excited about Garcia a little bit after um, Robert got hurt just because. You know, back in I think it was 2019, Garcia had a really good year. He was at the top of that lineup a lot, got on base, scored a ton of runs. But uh, the bat just isn't playing as well this year. You know, it really is kind of a noodle bat. I think he's got no no home runs, one stolen base, and you know the batting average just hasn't been there, which is just bad bit luck for the most part. But uh, you know, he go, Garcia could go back to the super utility role and get some at bats in the outfield, some at bats in the infield. And still, leave plenty of it bat, plenty of playing time for Engel here.
0: And before we go, Ray, uh, last Friday in the GM's office, uh, you wrote a really interesting column about some of the black box stuff, the, the uh, machinations that go on that people don't see, which is something that Baseball HQ talks about all the time: how the metrics get built, uh, how they get conceptualized, how they get used, and how they can be applied by our readers. And you were talking about the uh, matchups tool. And maybe you could explain first of all, how it works. And then second of all, the key question that you asked was, Hey, does it work? Yeah, this was a fun one
6: for me. It's I uh, the, the, I can't take credit for the tool in the sense that it's not my baby. I didn't write it or anything, but, uh, Eric, when Eric Fortamonte developed this tool, which essentially assigns a rating to each starting pitcher every day of, uh, how well we expect they're going to perform. He actually retired a tool that, uh, you know, that was way less effective than I had developed with Ron Chandler uh, 10 or so years ago. So this is, you know, while it's not mine, I kind of think of it as the replacement of something that I developed. And I'm glad that we have a much better version now. Um, so I, I take a little bit of personal interest in it. But the, uh, you know, the idea is, that, as I said, that we give every starter every day a rating for how well we expect they're going to perform based on how they've been performing, how we project they're going to perform over the rest of the season. and importantly. Who they're facing and where, so that we're taking into account opposing lineup, park factors, that sort of thing. And we end up with a rating of, uh, you know, the score can run uh, from a negative five to a positive five, although it, it rarely gets up to either of those levels. It mostly lives in the kind of minus two to plus three range. And I did a couple of things with this tool because I like to back test it every, every now and then. I wanted to prove, demonstrate how it was working. But more than that, for the current pitching environment, I kind of wanted to see how it had changed in the last couple of years, and whether it was capturing the advantage that pitchers have over hitters these days.
0: Okay, I'll bite. What would you find out? <laughs> so a bunch of people had pointed
6: out, I get a couple of emails from staff, a couple of uh, posts in our forums saying that, you know, the starting pitcher rating seemed to be quite a bit higher this year. There are more, on a daily basis, we, we break the pitchers into three tiers. We kind of say there's a strong starts, a weak starts group, and then in the middle we call it judgment calls. And the observation was that the strong starts group on a daily basis was, had a lot more members to it, was a lot more populated than we had seen in the past. And intuitively, that made sense to me because of the, like I said, the way that pitchers have an advantage over hitters these days. But I wanted to put some numbers behind that. So I pulled all the starts from April and May, which were something around the order of 1,500 pitcher starts and I broke them up into the usual buckets those three tiers that I was talking about and compared them to the same time to, to back in 2018 when I had done the same study when we first introduced this tool and sure enough strong starts are running at about 44% of all starts this year compared to 35% back in the first half of 2018 35 to 44% it's about a 25% increase which is you know by no means trivial that's a uh, Pretty substantial. So that was uh, certainly my first interesting finding. But again, tell me what you think. But, you know, just based on the context of how pitching is going these days relative to hitting, that
0: that seems to
6: me to be an expected result, right?
0: had you asked me before you started what I might expect that does line up with what I would have said because you know the uh, the willingness of pitchers to of hitters to swing at bad pitches more we're seeing higher than ever strikeout rates which can't all be put down to the pitchers native skills or their native skills plus spider tack or whatever they're using to increase their spin rate and make the balance even more unfair the game was moving towards a pitcher dominant model just by virtue of the fact that that's how the hitting was uh, developing and how players are being coached and how they're being rewarded was all for you know strike out three times is fine hit a three-run homer the fourth time and we love you kind of a situation so yeah that was exactly what I expected and then the uh, comparison that you had with DraftKings points outputs because a lot of our readers use these matchups uh, scoring to assess their rosters for uh, daily gaming and uh, boy the uh, the rating goes down, and the average DraftKings points per start goes down almost in lockstep.
6: Wild. Uh, but my primary purpose of doing this was doing the part of the study we were just talking about to see how the starting starts distribution had changed. But once I had that spreadsheet of the 1,500 starts all built with you know what we rated them before the start and then how they actually pitched, then I decided I probably should finish the exercise and basically repeat what I did in 2018 when I was initially – Backtesting this tool, which is to take those starts and, as you said, compare them to two metrics. One, our PQS, pure quality starts ratings of how we rate a start after it happens. And also DraftKings points as another proxy for, hey, was this a good start? Because sure, anytime you develop a tool that you'll rates a single start, it's got daily fantasy applications. And yeah, the results are pretty cool. And then, as you said, they just linear, linearly. <laughs> I can't say that word, linearly drop from the higher the rating to the lower rating, the higher DraftKings points to the lower DraftKings points, basically in a straight line, just in a near direct correlation, which is super cool to see. And actually, we have made some changes to the rating system since the initial rollout in 2018. And this breakdown looks even better than it did in 2018. So uh, the, clearly, the tool works and works well. And that gets me excited because uh, I love having tools that, uh, are actionable and lead you better lead you to better outcomes in this case literally every day of the
0: season. And I noticed that you, while you noted that the uh, the new version of the tool more accurately reflects high value starts and judgment call starts what was really interesting is how solidly the tool uh, predicts those low value starts, the minus starts that really you shouldn't be starting this pitcher. And what you said was, uh, you better have a very good reason for defying that rating, uh, an indication of how confident you are in the improvement in the tool.
6: Sure. I mean, you know, keeping in mind that what we do on the site is we take these sc- starting pitcher scores every day and we run them, you know, they're available to everybody, but then we also write a column around them where the writer's can go in every day and, you know, analyze a little bit more deeply where the number comes from. And in some cases, you know, if they have a good reason, we encourage them to deviate from the rating and say, this guy's rated as a weak start, either it's a small sample or, you know, we're not taking into account that you know, four guys on the Mets ran into each other in the outfield last night. None of them are going to be in the lineup today. You know, hypothetical example, right? Yeah, but believable. <laughs> but, you know, it's <laughs> an additional color that, the, that the, the, the rating may not get. But in this case, you know, the, the, the rating really is so effective at the lower end that I use the example of that uh, Carlos Martinez start from two weeks or so ago where he gave up 10 runs and didn't get out of the first inning against the Dodgers. Uh, not that that is the outcome every time we have a negative rating start, but it was a practical example that was front of mind at the time. So I, what I went and said was, if you're going to start a guy who had a minus 1.0 or worse rating, as Martinez did that night, you need to ask yourself, am I okay with the Carlos Martinez outcome here? Because that's
5: actually in play.
0: And that leads to something you mentioned at the end of your article, which you called next steps. These are things you'd like to look into subsequently. And one of them was, how can we validate the performance of a lesser starter having a really good outing? Somebody you just don't expect is going to throw a PQS four or five or have a 25-point a, you know, uh, DraftKings night right out of nowhere. And how does that affect his rating going forward in the same season, in the same next few periods, whatever the case might be?
6: Yeah, that's right. That's uh, it's a really good point. That's another reader comment I've gotten a few times that I'd like to explore. For instance, if I, if I look at today's top starters, uh, you can you go through these and, uh, you know, Today's top starters and his strong starts here: Zach Wheeler, Max Scherzer, Trevor Rogers, Julio Urias, a guy, all, all guys having a re, having really good seasons, right? And you go down that list a little further, and like, oh look, J. A. Happ. He's not, you know <laughs> one of these is not like the other, right? Right. Exactly. So the, the, the question from the readers becomes: Sure, I know the good starters. I know why they're in that neighborhood, but when I you know today's example is a Happ, but they. Uh, you know, Frankie Montas is another one on today's list who might be a, a better example of a, a more middling starter making a cameo appearance in strong starts tier. Should I have the same confidence in those occasional visitors to that tier when they're there that I have in the wheeler shirts or Rogers guys who I expect to be in that tier? And, you know, that might take a little more creative Excel magic for me to try to tier those guys out and figure out you know, and run the same studies and see if they, uh, the numbers hold up as well, but uh, I, I clearly can see the value of that. So it's probably worth the effort and something I'll immerse myself in uh, later in the season. It sounded to me like a good uh, a good project for like All-Star Week, for instance.
0: I was just thinking when I read that, that a lot would depend on how the reader intends to use the pitcher. Uh, You take the example of Jay Happ is a really good example because he's not having a good year and all of a sudden he turns up as a plus two or something like that, which indicates that he has a pretty good chance of having a pretty good outing. And depending on how you intend to use that information, you might not want to do it or you might want to do it. And uh, the example that comes to mind is if you're looking at him as the second pitcher in a DraftKings lineup you might say to yourself, gosh, he's, you know, he's in there at 3400 or 3300 or whatever, and, and Baseball HQ's tool says this is a guy who has a plus two chance of, of making a good start. This is a great payoff for the risk that I'm absorbing that the tool is somehow missing something about J-Hap or imputing something to J-Hap that shouldn't be imputed. I'm willing to take that chance because the payoff is pretty good if he does come through and have the good start at a very low uh, draft salary.
6: Exactly. There's a, you know, the risk reward is in your favor in that scenario, and the, th- the th- sort of the third tier of that analysis is because Hap's been so bad recently, he's likely to be low owned in DraftKings too, which means that you know you're get, you know if he does pay off, you're going to be one of the only people realizing that profit, which you know just enhances the reward side of that equation. And if it goes wrong and Hap gets pounded, oh, I lost my five bucks. I'll come back tomorrow, right? But that's a di- that's a different different equation than deploying Hap as a Streamer in your season-long fantasy league, where if he, you know, if he gets blown up, then it's going to take you, you know, a few weeks to work off the ratio damage, right?
0: That's exactly right. But on the other hand, the reward is he does do well, and you 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 benefit from it immediately. Plus, you can always not start him at some other point when he falls back down into the you know zero rate or minus one or whatever the case might be. It seems like it's a pretty useful tool for streaming purposes, but not in exactly the same proportional way that it is for daily uh, DFS play.
6: Yeah, exactly. That's why you're know, running the study and getting a little more concrete information about what happens when these kind of guys crawl into the top tier would give us better information about how to use them, and frankly, give everybody a little more confidence because you know people are people always are going to look at those numbers skeptically. And no matter what kind of aggregate reports I run that say that, hey, this tool works, they're going to look at the specific anecdotal example and be like, yeah, but you said Hap was good. And if it gets blown up, then people are going to be shy away from trusting it the next time somebody of that ilk climbs it to the top tier, which I get it. That's human nature.
0: Well, it's really interesting work, Ray. I hope you keep it up because it improves the tool, first of all. It makes interesting reading, second of all. And it helps us understand how to use the tool, third of all, all of which are very positive developments for the site and for the readers. Uh, So well done, and we'll talk to you again next week about the usual stuff.
6: Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Peter.
0: Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with James Anderson, the prospect guy from RotoWire. James Anderson coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Hello, babe. Hello. You know me, don't you, babe? I can't face your face, but your shadow is very familiar.
4: I'm Lou Gehrig. Now do you remember me?
3: Remember you? After the past summer, I'll never forget you.
4: It's funny you didn't recognize me right away. I played on the same team with you all season.
3: Yes, but you were so close to me, I was afraid to look back to see who you were. I gave you a great race, didn't I, babe? Boy, you ran me raggy. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run?
4: It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking with what? Never mind the fog with what. I went to college, Columbia, in
3: fact. You've heard of Columbia, haven't you? Sure, that's the college and Charlie Surrano surrounded with delicatessen stores and Yankee Scouts.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst and a lot more at RotoWire. James, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk about your other list, the top 400 fantasy prospects list. You dropped this list uh, with a revised top 100 at around the same time as your overall dynasty list. Will you be revising all 400 slots on the list at some point?
2: Yeah, that, that actually, uh, went live to the site, uh, a couple days ago. Um, that, that one was a lot of work as well. That's, that's really kind of my passion on the site is the the top 400 prospect rankings. Um, that's my favorite list to maintain. And, um, I mean, a lot's, a lot's changed already in just a month of minor league baseball. And I'm, I'm sure. A lot, a lot more is going to change here in the, the coming weeks.
0: I'm curious how you go about valuing these prospects on what must be a fairly ongoing basis. you got 400 guys you have to monitor, plus probably, what, 50 more who are just on the fringe of making the list should somebody fall down from the list. What are you looking for when you... Look in uh, minor league baseball stats, my, minor league baseball narratives. How do you assess all of these players and keep them ordered in any kind of way that makes sense to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I know that uh, every, everyone that ranks prospects has, has a process that, that works for them. Um, I don't, you know, I'm in charge of ranking every prospect in the minors. Uh, I live in Wisconsin, so it's not necessarily a a hotbed of um, minor league affiliates. And so I I do not see as many of these guys in person as a lot of other uh, minor league analysts do. I mean, I I know a lot of people, uh, Baseball HQ and and elsewhere, do a really good job of of getting to games and, and seeing a bunch of these guys. Uh, I've seen a fair number of them, but, um, certainly not as many as like Chris Blessing has or or guys like that. Uh, so I'm, I'm relying a lot on video. I'm relying a lot on statistics. I'm relying a lot on, uh, reports from people I trust, um, whether they be public or, or private, uh, reports. And, um, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at, Age to level is is a great place to start when when you're looking at any prospect. How old is he? What level is he playing at? Um, what's his track record? What do I think the the hit tool is going to be like? You know, how much is he striking out? How much is he walking? Is he is he getting to power? Does it does it look like he's going to eventually be able to get to power in games? Um, you know, I think you got to be careful when you're looking at certain statistics like stolen bases in the minor leagues, I think can be a false positive at times. There's just, it's a a wacky environment down there on the farm and you've got different organizations telling different guys to just steal as many bases as possible. Um, you're, you're running up against catchers that that can't really control the run game. I mean, there's a lot of different, stuff that goes into that so i'm I'm looking at speed grades probably more so than just raw stolen bases in the minor leagues um but i mean there's there's so much that goes into it i mean we could talk about it uh really all day um but yeah that's that's maybe a, a quick quick summary
0: you broke up the list into tiers of uneven sizes, like clumps or, or groups of players of similar value. What was your approach there in thinking of it in that form?
2: Uh, I just wanted, like, I I work off of a, a spreadsheet, and I kind of was color coding those sort of for my own use, but I thought that the the readers would enjoy that as well, and it, it's it's just kind of it's important for people to understand that a set of prospect rankings, there's going to be really big drop-offs in terms of sort of the uh, probability level combined with maybe the upside that a player brings. Like for instance, like CJ Abrams is like my fourth ranked prospect. Uh, There's a gigantic gap in terms of value between the fourth ranked guy and the like 16th ranked guy, even though they're only, they're 12 spots apart, but you know, there, there's just such a wide gap there because CJ Abrams is a, is a just a high end hitter, a guy that's capable of being the number one prospect in baseball right now. That that wouldn't uh, be something I would take issue with at all. And, uh, I wanted to kind of make it clear that there are like four or five guys that I think have a case to be number one right now. It's, and then um, you get into a range like further down the list, maybe from like 45 to like 85, uh, just kind of ballpark numbers there. But like those guys are all fairly interchangeable. Like it doesn't it doesn't take much at all to move from like the 70s into the 50s. But to move from the 20s into the single digits, like that's that's just not going to happen for most guys. Um, so it's just it's it's important to kind of know that there there are big drop off areas. There's parts of the list that are extremely fluid. There's parts of the list that aren't really fluid at all. Um, and I think that 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 can be a misconception. Like it, the on average, like whoever the 50th ranked prospect is at a given time. Like, that player is in- incredibly risky. Like, they're, they're not a lock to provide much real-life value at all. Like, they, they could. They could be really good. They could end up being uh, great, but there's just there's no real certainty once you kind of get past a certain point with guys.
0: Your revised top 100 prospects included three 18-year-olds, and I'm talking about July 1st dates. I don't know exactly how old they are. Some of them might still be 17. Uh, but they were shortstops, and I was wondering who they were and uh, how they got on your list, why they got on your list.
2: Uh which, which guys are we talking about exactly? Uh,
0: at number 40, you had Wilman Diaz of the Mets. Oh, yeah. 69, yep. Carlos Colmenares of Tampa. Like, they don't already have enough shortstop prospects. And number <laughs> 70 is Christian yep. Hernandez of the Cubs.
2: Yeah, so uh, the, the, the July 2 market, uh, as you alluded to, is, I mean, that's really where a lot of the absolute best hitting prospects come from every year. Uh those those top guys, when they pan out, they become the number one prospect or the number three prospect in the game. So I my approach in Dynasty is like I, I'm gonna look at as much video as I can of these guys. Sometimes it's it's outdated video, maybe it's from six months ago, a year ago. Uh I'm gonna read as much as I can about them and I'm gonna just make the best evaluation I can uh and I'm not gonna wait for them to go to rookie ball and light it up before I rank them fairly highly because I just if you do that if, if you're waiting for these top j2 guys to prove it on the field before you roster them in dynasty you're just you're not going to end up with any of them ever uh, unless you trade for them and so Wilman Diaz is my favorite of that group from this past year uh, he's just got uh, you know, high, hyperbolic bat speed, just a really, really athletic, uh, quick swing with all kinds of leverage, just natural leverage uh, that's going to lead to um, massive home run power. He's a good athlete. I'm, I'm not sure if he sticks at shortstop. He might end up in the outfield. He might end up at third base. Um, but I, I just those are the type of tools that you, you don't find um, hardly ever in the amateur draft. Um, just, just a, a uniquely, uh, gifted, um, player, Wilman Diaz. The other two, Colmenares, Hernandez, uh, very different players. Colmenares is a, a shorter, sort of stockier guy with, uh, ridiculous power for his age. Um, not sure where he's going to end up on the field. It's, it's probably going to be somewhere on the dirt. And then Hernandez is taller. Uh, he gets kind of absurd. Comps physically to, to pass tall shortstops from the Dominican Republic. Um, but, you know, he's got some speed. He's got, he's obviously got power. It's, it's, it's questionable what, what his hit tool is going to end up being. But um, all three of those guys are, are just high end uh, July 2 signees and they all could really skyrocket up, up the rankings even further if they perform well uh, this summer.
0: Before we go on explain to our listeners what you mean by July 2 signees?
2: Yeah, so um it actually might not be it's not going to be July 2 um at least it wasn't this past year because of the pandemic but uh dating back, you know, um tens of years, they've uh July 2's been when you can start signing uh the 16-year-olds from Latin America and this is where guys like Ronald Acuna, Juan Soto, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., this is where those those guys signed on July 2, and they signed at the age of 16, and they got seven-figure bonuses. Um, and a lot of these, you know, there's been a lot of controversy in recent years, uh, past 10 years, uh, especially of teams cut deals with these guys when they're like 14 year 14 years old at times Um, it's it's a shady market down there it's it's not uh, all above board by any means Um, but that's that's the way it works right now late this past uh, year they signed on or actually this year they signed on January 15th because of the pandemic Um, and I think they're going to sign again on January 15th uh, this next year Uh, but that's that's where you get the 16-year-olds. The um, you'll, you'll see some guys sign when they're 17, 18. Um, some guys sign from Cuba when they're in their 20s, and, the, and that can happen any part of the calendar. But the 16-year-olds uh, typically have signed on July 2, and recently they've signed on January 15.
0: And so it sounds to me like that what you're saying is for those players, this is an absolutely free agent market. They can just sell themselves to the highest bidder. They're not subject to any kind of drafting process or, or distribution process
2: yeah exactly. I mean they they might not be the ones making the call. Um, you have agents and handlers down there, and their their families might be involved deciding with who who they sign with and um, a lot of these deals are getting cut when the player is is too young to necessarily uh, make that decision for himself, but um, it is a free market down there theoretically.
0: And while we all kind of wish it wasn't so, you have to look at a kid who's 14 and somebody comes along and says, you know, I can get you 3 million bucks or I can get you a million seven. And he's sitting in relatively poor poverty conditions, probably sounds like a pretty good deal. And and you never know if you're not going to make it or you never know if you're going to get hurt or something might go wrong. And a million four in the hand is worth, you know, 2 million in the bush kind of thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's life changing money. and it's, you know, a lot of these guys end up signing for much less than that and never making it, and, um, I mean, there's, there's a sad story there, too. I mean, there's much more, um, much more sad stories than success stories, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that type of money um, from where a lot of these guys come from is just absolutely life-changing uh, generational wealth, really.
0: Something popped into my mind when I was looking at the list. I saw a number of players who had some big league experience. Some of them are still in the big leagues. Uh, Cabrian Hayes, Alec Manoa, uh, Shane McClanahan, uh, Sanchez, Gilbert, McKinstry. Uh, All of these guys have had some major league experience. And when you're ranking the prospects or putting them into your tiers, how much weight do you give to the Context of the player's big league status if he's in the majors, how far away if he's not in the majors, and even maybe he's blocked in his major league organization, which is going to slow his progress into a productive capacity, like being a shortstop in the Rays organization, for instance, where they're lining up like guys at a bus stop.
2: Yeah, uh, obviously, I mean, I, I care a lot about proximity, I care a lot about upside, and um. Proc- with proximity typically comes you know for lack of a better word like a floor uh, like a higher floor uh, so it's it's all factored in I mean I like K. Brian Hayes a lot uh, I think he's my highest ranked big leaguer now that Jared Kanick's been sent down I don't think at Ky Brianan Hayes' very best he stacks up with um, the guys ahead of him uh, at their very best like I mean I don't see K. Brian Hayes as being a guy that gets drafted in the first couple rounds of the fantasy draft. Uh, maybe I, I could be wrong about that. I mean, he, he's looked great this year, um, but it's, it's kind of weighing that proximity and that, that sort of level of safety versus the upside of maybe some of the guys that, that haven't debuted yet on the pitching side. I really care about proximity. Um, you know, I just, it's it's pretty rare that I'll rank a teenage pitcher in my top like 75, top 100, uh, just because so much can go wrong, obviously. And then as to like a guy being blocked, you know, I had Vidal Bruhan down in the 90s of my rankings before the season started because I thought he was pretty blocked. I, I just I thought, you know, this guy. Yeah, he can play all over the diamond, but Tampa already has a handful of guys who can play all over the diamond that are that are all pretty good. Um, is Bruhan going to hit enough to ever really get a look as a true everyday player, or is he just going to kind of get relegated into a utility role? I ended up bumping him up uh, about 75 spots because of how impressive he has been offensively this year. He still is blocked, you know. I mean, he's on the 40-man roster. It, it would certainly seem that he's ready for for showtime, but they they don't really have a spot for him yet. But it's uh, kind of just weighing: can a guy hit enough to make himself unblocked? Um, I mean, that was an issue for Kyle Tucker there for, for a while, where it just it was kind of like, when's he gonna get a shot? Um, but he but he had that that offensive ceiling where you kind of figured he would eventually sort of force his way in i don't worry much about like carlos Colmenares. he signs with tampa bay he's five years away from the majors probably i'm not going to worry about how blocked a guy like that is uh, or even if he was two or three years away from the majors because just so much can change in a two to three year span that I, i just don't think it's worth factoring in but um, With guys that are pretty close, I do factor it in, and it's you kind of have to have a certain level of offensive ceiling to kind of uh, pass that bar.
0: Well, speaking of guys already in the big leagues and shortstops and Tampa, uh, Taylor Walls is playing for Tampa, of course, and you had him rated at the lower end of the, your dynasty list and you know, kind of the middle third of your prospects list, and you had Wander Franco, of course, much higher on both, number two on the prospects list overall. And Taylor Walls has been okay. So far in the big leagues, uh, how does the fact that he's in the big leagues and playing well affect Wander Franco's ranking or rating in your mind?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was one of the people who thought walls would get the call ahead of Franco um, because of his age. He's, he's four, four years older than Franco. Um, so he's four years older. He was on the 40-man. So him getting that call ahead of Franco um, certainly wasn't a surprise. He's also the better defensive shortstop than Franco. Uh, I just – I don't see a way that Franco is denied some sort of everyday role whenever they decide to, to promote him. Um, maybe it's not an everyday shortstop role if Walls continues to produce. I mean he hasn't hit a home run yet. Uh, he's, he's striking out a little over a quarter of the time, but he's, he's walking a ton. He's playing really good defense. So he hasn't earned a demotion or anything like that, but I mean, I think Franco could play third base. Franco could play second base. I mean, he's a, he was the number one, uh, guy to sign on July two back in, uh, what was that? 2017. Um, and he's been the top prospect in baseball for a long time now. So I just that's not the type of guy that you see kind of eased in on, on a part time role or um, but he is the type of guy where you're gonna you're gonna see him at triple A for a bit longer, um, because they do have that the depth you alluded to with Taylor Walls. Um, but I it doesn't really affect Franco to me in, in a set of rankings that are intended for dynasty leagues because I'm under the assumption that when he gets the call, it's going to be to play every day. And uh, I don't see Taylor Walls being someone who stands in his way whenever he does get that call.
0: And, of course, another factor in all of this is service time manipulation. Uh, the teams are very adroit at figuring out exactly when guys should come up to maximize their exposure to the low salary period of uh, of their early careers and two names in that regard that jumped up uh, to me on your prospects list are Detroit players, outfielder Riley Green and corner infielder Spencer Torkelson. It's clear the Tigers have very little incentive to bring these guys up to the big leagues in any kind of hurry, because all they're doing is starting a clock that's going to cost them money down the road. How does your rating method and our interest as fantasy managers allow for service time manipulation?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think, it's kind of the it's kind of the same thing with, with Adley Rutschman. Um, I mean Green, he's a 20 year old at Double A, so I I think you're probably not looking at this year as being super realistic, even if he was on a better team. Uh, Spencer Torkelson did not hit the ground running at High A. He's been amazing uh, over the past couple weeks and I think you'll see Torkelson join green at double a here in about a month or so um but we everyone kind of knows the score in dynasty like we know Detroit's not gonna bring these guys up this year because they're not they're just not ready to to do that uh I am 100% against service time manipulation I mean I, I just think it's an awful way to treat your employees um but it's it's just something that we we are all aware of and it's it factors in I mean it, with those guys specifically it'll it'll be interesting to see if Detroit's willing to, to bring them up if they're both looking ready early next season um, you know they would have to really finish this year strong I think for that to be a, a consideration because I mean with with the Orioles you can kind of squint and see a, a bright future there given what they have on the farm with, with Detroit I know, I know they've been picking high in the draft for a while. I, I still can't really envision a time with the current players they have in their farm system where they're really competitive. So um, that's a pretty bleak looking outlook. But I, I do think eventually they will just bring those guys up once they're ready, if, if for nothing else, than to give the fans something to watch.
0: And I'll just mention this without hope, without wanting to start a conversation about it, but we've got a CBA coming up, and the players have been making noise about trying to put an end to this kind of thing and getting players paid earlier in their careers rather than being uh, sort of stalking horses for uh, veterans to keep their salaries down by threatening them with, I've got a prospect here, he's about as good as you are, I can pay him 500 grand, I'm not paying you 10 million, you know, kind of thing. So that's something else I think we need to keep an eye on. Uh, we ta- You talked about guys who are blocked and uh, Wander Franco not being blocked in the long term, but... You, you have a guy on your list, uh, number four, CJ Abrams, who's about as blocked as anyone in baseball history could be behind uh, Fernando Tatis in San Diego, who has signed to stay there for a while, at least depending on his opt-out clauses. Uh, Abrams at least is playable on your list at outfield and second base. So how much does that position flexibility affect the value of a dynasty prospect when you're f- calculating these lists?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think with, with that level of prospect, you just, you kind of, assume things are going to work itself out and it it certainly helps him that he's not just this guy who's limited to like let's just say he's like limited to first base or dh and the team has a couple of those guys like cj abrams i i'm pretty sure he could handle almost any position on the field uh certainly could play any of the up the middle spots even like there's even been kind of whispers each of the past two years that Maybe, uh, Fernando Tatis could be like a Byron Buxton level defender in center field if they ever wanted to go that route. And CJ Abrams maybe could be, uh, that type of center fielder as well. So, uh, it really helps when you're an up the middle player who's going to generate value no matter where he's at, uh, because it does make it a lot easier to just find the spot for those guys.
0: So if the bat plays, they'll find a place to play it.
2: Exactly. Yeah. The bat, the bat should play, um, I mean, his his hit tool is is right up there. And uh, defensively, he should be able to handle wherever they want to put him.
0: Your RotoWire colleagues, Chris Liss and Jeff Erickson, recently, I think on Sirius XM, I heard this. Uh, they were talking about the likelihood that the Royals will call up Bobby Witt with shortstop Adalberto Mondesi often uh, on and off the I.L. What do you think the likelihood is that we see Bobby Witt this season other than maybe a September call up?
2: I do think we will see him in the second half, but I don't think we'll see him as quickly as as List wanted <laughs> wanted wanted him up. I think that was probably wishful thinking on Chris's part because I, I think he's probably got him on some teams. But um, I the Royals are not like I don't want to give them a, a huge pat on the back for for not being. Uh, well-known and well-documented service time manipulators, but the Royals are on the more player-friendly side of things in terms of when they'll call a guy up. Um, And, you know, they've been talking even back in 2020, you heard uh, Dayton Moore, I think, say on the record that Bobby Witt uh, could factor into their plans this season. And, Uh, They weren't necessarily shying away from that in spring training. You're not going to see him get the call from double-A to the majors. I think once he gets the call from double-A to triple-A, if the Royals are still hanging around in the the wild card mix, then I think you can start countdown in terms of when we might see him get that call. Uh, I I think it could happen in July. It could happen in August. Uh, I don't think this team is going to be hesitant to start his clock especially if the team is at 500 or a bit above 500. Uh, they've got a ton of great young pitching, That a lot of it that's already up. Um, they've got a really nice set of big league hitters at the top of their order. So, I mean, I think Bobby Witt up in late July, mid-August, something like that, is, is totally possible.
0: And of all the minor leaguers' prospects who aren't in Major League Baseball yet, do you expect anybody to be up before the All-Star break?
2: Uh, yeah, I've got a, I got a couple names I wrote down for that. I mean, I think Vidal Brujan, um, given the fact that he can play anywhere, I mean, I think once somebody gets injured in Tampa Bay, I think you'll see Bruhan get the call since he's on the 40-man. Uh, Jaron Duran with the Red Sox is, a uh, one guy that I get asked about all the time. I think we, we probably see him in later this month, maybe in two or three weeks. Um, and then... You know, maybe we see Wanda Franco before the All-Star break. Uh, I do think we will see him before September, but um, maybe not before the All-Star break.
0: Well, James, this has been great. Very interesting. Great information. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with James Anderson.
2: Uh, on Twitter at RealJRAnderson and then if you go to rotowire.com slash podcast, uh, you can get a 10-day trial. Uh, you don't need to put down a credit card. Um, but everything that I do, I, I usually tweet out from my Twitter account.
0: Well, James, thanks very much. This was, as I said, super interesting. I really look forward to the next time we get a chance to talk.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. This is a lot of fun.
0: James Anderson is RotoWire's lead prospect analyst, assistant baseball editor, the co host of Farm Fridays on SiriusXM Radio, and the co host of the RotoWire Prospect podcast. Very grateful to James that he could find an hour to spend with me here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it'll be our Baseball HQ commentaries, the minor league minute, frequent flyer, and extra innings all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
4: I think probably the most colorful guy in Ball 4 is the manager of the Seattle Pilots, Joe Schultz. Joe was sort of the opposite of Vince Lombardi. You know, Joe felt sorry for us. He told us not to feel bad. We just didn't have the talent. Uh, But he was great. He always tried to keep the clubhouse loose. He was always saying funny things, you know. I remember uh, during a doubleheader against the uh, Baltimore Orioles, the eighth inning, we're losing 11 to nothing. You know, we know we're going to lose the second game. We just don't know what the score is going to be yet. Joe Schultz looks up and down the bench and he says, Men, between games of this doubleheader, we have a choice of ham, roast beef, or tuna salad.
1: Baseball HQ
4: Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Abbott here. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer and my extra innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at the New York Mets third-base prospect, Brett Beatty, is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon.
1: Despite being the 12th pick in the 2019 draft, New York Mets' Brett Batty has never received a tremendous amount of prospect buzz, but that could change soon if he continues his blisteringly hot start to the season. At 6'3", 220, Batty has always had plus raw power, but at 19, he was one of the older prep prospects in the draft, and industry analysts had concerns about his conditioning, athleticism, and long-term ability to stick at the hot corner. Batty struggled in his pro debut in 2019, hitting just .234, causing some to wonder if he hadn't been overdrafted. But he did show good power, stroking 16 doubles and 7 home runs and 188 at-bats, and the Mets were confident enough in what they saw that they moved him across three different levels. The pandemic, of course, wiped out the 2020 minor league season, costing Batty crucial development time, but he worked hard during the shutdown and at the Mets' alternate training site, and came into 2021 looking stronger and more athletic. So far, that hard work has paid off at the plate, and through 27 games at High A Brooklyn, Batty is ripping the cover off the ball, slashing 355 with a 455 on base percentage and a 602 slugging percentage with 8 doubles and 5 home runs and 93 at bats. At the plate, Batty has a quick, powerful left handed stroke, with some scouts giving him 70 grades for his raw power. He also has a good understanding of the strike zone, and while no one is going to ever confuse Batty with Nolan Arenado on defense, he has improved his range and footwork and now profiles at least as an average defender. Given that Batty is already 21, it'll be interesting to see how quickly the Mets move him through their farm system, but if he continues to rake, he could be moved up to AA by the All-Star break. For fantasy owners looking to retool, Brett Batty continues to fly under the radar, but that could change soon, and long-term, this combination of plate discipline and plus power could have him in New York by late 2022. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League analyst Rob Corden.
0: Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Oh, and speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, our daily call-ups reports look at Detroit right-handed starter Bo Burrows, Minnesota outfielder Gilberto Celestino, and all the other players making their debuts. Now it's time for the frequent flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth consideration for a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Tampa right-handed starter Drew Strottman is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
7: He's a hard-throwing athletic right-handed pitcher who struggled with his command after returning from Tommy John surgery, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst... With a high three-force delivery and a fastball that sits 97 to 98 miles per hour with late run, and an above-average slider and cutter, 24-year-old Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Drew Stropman appears to be on the Major League Fast Track with Tampa, perhaps arriving in 2021, perhaps arriving sooner in 2021 rather than later, but perhaps he's not arriving just yet. Drew Stratman's results so far in 2021 at AAA Durham have been inconsistent at best, allowing one earned run total in his first three starts at AAA, then getting torched for six earned runs against the Charlotte Knights on May 23rd, followed by going six scoreless in his next start on May 28th, and again getting torched for six more earned runs in the first inning, Drew Stratman's only inning, on June 3rd. See? Inconsistent. That's why 24-year-old Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Drew Stratman, like all of our frequent flyers, should be concerned to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. And he probably is still available in all but the deepest of dynasty leagues. After all, this former fourth-round pick by the Rays in 2017, 109th overall, is currently sporting a 4-1 record with a 439 ERA through six starts in 2021 at AAA. Solid, but unspectacular to say the least. Maybe those numbers don't necessarily jump out at you right away until you realize that Drew Strautman skipped AA entirely. On that basis, a few bad outings, or outright clunkers, are not surprising and are to be expected from such a big jump. Digging deeper is something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Despite the small and therefore perhaps unreliable sample size of five starts in 2021, Drew Strotman has, thus far, maintained his career strikeout percentage of 23% in the minors and even improved his strikeout percentage in AAA in 2021 to 26%, a 3% increase. Hence, maybe his improved strikeout percentage so far in 2021 shows that Drew Strotman is indeed capable of making the proper pitching adjustments despite the big jump from Class A to AAA bypassing A AA entirely. Plus, the Tampa Bay Rays added Drew Strotman to the 40-man roster last year to protect him from the Rule 5 draft, and subsequently, maybe you should add him too as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings. My comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week... I'd like to talk about taking a look at pitchers' first career starts. On Monday of this week, a couple of young pitchers stepped onto the mound for their first starts in Major League Baseball. Zach Thompson, a 27-year-old 6D prospect, started for Miami against Boston. He got through three innings, gave up a couple of earned runs, four hits and a walk, just one strikeout, and ended up taking the loss in a 5-3 Boston win that same night jackson coar of kansas city also made his debut starting against the angels coar is a former first round pick had dominated the minors at every stop and has an 8b prospect rating he has rotation starter written all over his baseball hq collops page by rights the prized prospect coar should have outperformed the fringy thompson but as you probably know he didn't outperform pretty much anybody Thompson's debut was less than stellar, but Coar's was just plain awful. He faced only seven batters, only got two of them out. The other five had three hits and two walks, and scored four earned runs before Coar got the hook. He also took a loss in an 8-3 Angels win, and after one big league start, Coar was sporting an ERA of 54.0 and a whip of 7.5. In another career debut, the pitcher went four innings, gave up eight hits and two walks, five earned runs, and just five Ks. That's a 540 ERA and a 250 whip. So clearly we can't trust pitchers in the first games of their MLB careers. But wait. Just the Thursday before Thompson and Coar's debuts, Toronto started rookie right-hander Alec Manoa against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. Manoa is an 8C prospect with an outlook pretty similar to Coar's Mid-rotation starter, probably going to have a solid career. Unlike Coar, though, Manoa lived up to his billing. He went six innings, struck out seven, scattered a couple of hits in a couple of walks, and held the Bombers off the scoreboard. All of this kind of intrigued me since we spend so much time as fantasy managers trying to read the tea leaves or inspecting our crystal balls to suss out which rookie starting pitchers might be worth a fantasy start in our leagues or in DFS play and which ones aren't. So I looked it up. I got the stats of all 90 pitchers who have first starts in 2019, 2020, and 2021. Just for fun, I also looked up the first starts of this year's top 10 starters by Baseball HQ's dollar value. Guys with names like DeGrom and Darvish and Gosman. Gosman? Let me take another look at this. Well, how do you like that? Yep, Kevin Gosman, right there at the top of the list. $35, bucks, 2 ahead of DeGrom. Now where was I? Oh yes, first starts. The average first career start by a pitcher in 2021 looks pretty much like this. About four and a half innings, about one less than those 10 aces. 19 batters faced, five fewer. Four hits, which is two fewer than the aces, but in a lot fewer innings. A walk and a half versus 2.2, pretty close there. And four strikeouts, one less than the aces. Also, this year's starters have a 7.15 ERA, well worse than the Aces 4.44, but the 1.75 whip, while bad, not so bad compared with the Aces 1.50 over the years. These 2021 numbers are doubtless hugely inflated by legendary flops like Coar's outing, which pales in comparison with Taylor Hearn's first outing. I don't know if you remember this, back in April, a third of an inning, four earned runs, that's a 108 ERA, not 1.08, 108, three hits and four walks, good for a 21 whip, and no strikeouts for Texas against Seattle. And of course, cherry-picking some of the greatest pitchers of our lifetimes gives them an advantage, as does the rapidly changing approach to pitcher usage, since a lot of those guys got their starts. But on an individual basis, the Aces did generally have better results. The fewest innings any of them went was four. DeGrom went seven full, which was matched by only four of this year's crop. The aforementioned Cole Irvin, Peter Lambert, Jordan Yamamoto, and Logan Allen just the other day in a win against Milwaukee. The most common outcome for the 2021 kids, five innings, five hits, two walks, two earned runs, and three strikeouts. For the aces, more like six and a third, seven hits, two walks, five earned runs, and five strikeouts. So I guess you never know. Oh, and by the way, the third guy I mentioned earlier, the one who went for four innings, gave up five earned runs, but I didn't mention his name. Well, that game was back in 2008, a May 5th home start with the Diamondbacks facing Philadelphia in Phoenix. The Diamondbacks lost that one 11-4, and their starter did take the loss. But you know what? It all worked out just fine for fantasy managers who stayed with young Max Scherzer. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 28 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert from this Friday full edition, James Anderson the lead prospects analyst and assistant baseball editor at rotowire the co-host of farm fridays on sirius xm and the co-host of the rotowire prospect podcast james is clearly one of the hardest working guys in fantasy baseball and a terrific interview as well i also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, which in turn helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday Full Edition featuring a guest expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs and Rotographs, and he has an interesting story up at BaseballHQ.com, and of course, we'll have all the usual great stuff. That's Jeff Zimmerman coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.